a massive Oracle disaster in Europe inside the mind of a tech sales rep and legal considerations for digital transformations. Those are just a few of the topics we're going to cover here in episode 158 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 158. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients with their digital transformation journeys, and we help with software selection and implementation as it relates to ERP and other sorts of digital transformation initiatives. Uh, This show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, uh, which is the company I work for, and also sponsored by or produced by, I should say, uh, Major Tom Productions. So thank you for being here today. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the people, process, and technology and strategy sides of transformation. Uh, you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also subscribe and listen and watch on your favorite uh, podcast platform, wherever that may be. And you can go see all of the platforms we stream to at transformationgroundcontrol.com. So be sure to check it out every Wednesday. We've got a great episode for you here today in episode 158. We're going to start off the conversation with uh, some questions from the audience um, from my YouTube channel. And we're also going to uh, get into a case study, uh, sort of our hot topic for this week, is going to be a massive Oracle disaster in Europe. Uh, We're going to talk about that uh, case study here and what the implications are and some of the lessons learned are uh, in our opening segment. And then later in the show, we'll have our first guest, uh, James Roloff. He's with Roloff Consulting. He's going to be on the show talking about uh, unveiling. Uh, the tech sales industry. So whether you're a person that's in the sales, uh, enterprise sales space, or if you're a team member, uh, an executive or a team member that is negotiating with or interacting with sales reps uh, as part of your acquisition of new technologies, um, you're going to want to listen in on this conversation because we'll talk about both angles, how to how to sell more effectively and how to buy more effectively from sales reps if you're involved in negotiations and that sort of thing. And then later in the show, we'll have our uh, our second guest will be Marcus Harris. Uh, we're going to play you a clip from a previous interview we did a few months ago where he talks about some of the legal considerations uh, in digital transformation, especially if you're procuring software and services to go along with that. What are some of the legal considerations there? Um, sort of a, a piggyback onto our first guest with James Roloff to talk about the tech sales industry. Um, we'll keep going with that thread uh, later in the show with Marcus Harris to talk about some of the legal considerations as well. So. Uh, be sure to stick around for those guests. We've got a, a, a action-packed episode as always. Um, but first, I want to get into some of the, the questions that uh, we've received here recently on uh, YouTube in particular. I'm going to dive into some some questions here um, that we've we've received in recent days here um, on, on YouTube. And the first comment um, I wanted to address here is a comment that was on my review of Workday. Uh, which is, if you aren't familiar with Workday, Workday is a SaaS-based cloud uh, 
uh, human capital management and financial system. And the comment here on YouTube in response to this video is that Workday is an awful accounting platform. It's like it has contempt for financial management. And the reason I wanted to unpack this comment is because I always get mixed comments on any review I do of any product. I do a lot of independent reviews of not just Workday, but also you know SAP, Oracle, NetSuite, Salesforce, you know whatever whatever software you're looking for a review of. Chances are pretty high that I've probably done a review uh, from a technology agnostic perspective. And uh, the reason this is an interesting comment is because Workday originally started off as a human capital management software, and they've more recently moved into more financial management as well. And they're really starting to compete with the more comprehensive ERP software providers in the marketplace, which is which is an interesting strategy and in, in a direction they seem to be going. But this particular comment is interesting because they're calling out the financial management piece of Workday and saying it's not adequate. Um, and that's a fair comment. I mean, I, I trust this person and, and um, assume that whatever their business needs are are not being well met by this particular solution. But I think it's a, a good reminder. The reason I want to pull this comment out is not necessarily to, to debate whether or not Workday is a good financial management system, but just to highlight the importance of really understanding what your business needs are as an organization, making sure you clearly define those requirements and that you assess and evaluate potential software solutions in that context. So um, in this case, if Workday does not have the financial capabilities that you need, maybe it's because Workday just doesn't have the maturity of financial processes um, as do, or maybe not as much so as some of the more advanced or more sophisticated, more mature financial management solutions, like for example, NetSuite. Uh, NetSuite's a, a SaaS-based solution that has been around in the cloud for about 25 years. And uh, they started off as a financial management software and have since added a lot of capabilities on top of that. So I'm not saying that NetSuite's better than Workday, but you could look at a solution like a NetSuite uh, or you know a plethora of other ERP and financial and accounting systems out there that do financial management better. And potentially you find a better solution that, that addresses that. Now, the question becomes is, was Workday deployed in this organization from this particular comment or commenter, I should say, um, was it deployed in the organization primarily as a HR solution? And then they happened to just tack on or add on the financial piece of it. And that's where they got into trouble or where they found the mismatch. I don't know the answer to that from the, the person's comment here, but those, those are just some of the considerations to think about as you're going through a, a software evaluation and as you're looking at potential uh, systems for your, for your organization. Another uh, comment I wanted to, to call out here that I, that I think is worth noting is that um, this is a comment for, um, this is a comment that was actually on my top ERP systems for 2024 video. And uh, every year I publish a ranking that sort of summarizes our team's findings and, and uh, experience with different ERP systems in the marketplace. A few months ago, uh, I published a video where I count down the top 10 ERP systems based on our, our team's experience. And it's meant to be a tech agnostic, independent, unaffiliated uh, countdown or review of different systems in the market. And so this uh, comment is from that video. And the, and the person here on YouTube says, some of these systems aren't bad, but in most cases, even with better systems, the third-party consultants installing have limited control over what any given module can do. 95% of the time, manufacturers especially need customizable systems. Everyone who's been through an ERP implementation knows the risk of a boxed system or a commercial off-the-shelf system. 
And I think this is a really interesting comment because usually comments I get on YouTube talk more about how um, you should be using more off the shelf standard functionality and not doing customization. But this person is coming at it from a different perspective, saying that most of the time you have to customize software and you need a customizable system, especially in this case, it sounds like this person is in manufacturing or focused on the manufacturing space in that comment. And I agree with that. I think that, you know, going in with an expectation that you're probably going to have to customize something is probably a realistic expectation. But the question becomes, you know, how much can or should you customize? You know, a lot of these systems in the market now, you know, you look at, for example, uh, Microsoft Dynamics 365. Um, that's a highly customizable solution, you know, more customizable than a lot of systems out there in the marketplace. And in Microsoft's just one example, I'm just picking on it or, or using it as an example since it's such a, a major player in the space. But when you look at uh, Microsoft Dynamics, it's a highly customizable system, very flexible, which can be a good thing. There's a lot of strength that, that or a lot of benefit that that can bring to your organization, but it also brings a lot of risk. If you start to customize too much, now all of a sudden you've, you've changed the software, you've, you've um, created something that it wasn't meant to do necessarily. And so that's where where a lot of organizations get into trouble is they find that uh, they, they've over customized. And once they start customizing, uh, even in areas that are justifiably, justifiably being customized, it's sort of a slippery slope that you start heading down where the organization gets used to the fact that they can customize and then they start over customizing, creating more problems and risks and headaches. So that's where, you know, most people come in in comments and most people in the industry, I would say, will would say that customization is bad. This person is saying the opposite, saying you need a customizable solution and that standard off the shelf software is risky. And I think there's risk on both sides. And, and this person brings up a good point that standard cookie cutter software is risky. It's, it's forcing a change in your organization that may not necessarily be better. In some cases, yes, if you use the standard cookie cutter way a software was, was built, in some cases, yes, it's going to bring business value. Yes, it's going to uh, be operationally acceptable or useful to your organization. But in many cases, the software has limitations or parameters that don't work well for your business. And then you're faced with a tough decision. Do we, do we change the software? Do we customize the software and introduce that risk that goes along with that? Or do we change our business and potentially water down some of our operational advantages that we might have or operational strengths, do we water that down and dilute that advantage in the name or in the spirit of preserving standard cookie cutter off the shelf software? And so that's, that's never an easy answer. Um, I know there's a lot of purists that would argue either side of that, but, but it, there is a huge gray area there. And I think having an objective view of, of where, you know, where it does make sense to customize and where it doesn't, um, that's where you're going to, where you're going to uh, thrive if you if you can make that objective uh, decision. Last question I'll get to here uh, is from my YouTube video that is the U.S. Navy failure, uh, U.S. Navy ERP failure. Uh, video is titled "Lessons from a One Billion Dollar ERP Software Failure at the United States Navy." And in this video, I talk about um, the billion dollar spend and how the U.S. Navy got into trouble with this implementation. I encourage you to check out the video if you haven't seen it. I mean, you can go to my YouTube channel and just search U.S. Navy, and you'll find it. It's one of the more recent videos that I've posted. And uh, the comment here is on that video, and it says, 
I think the biggest problem with digital transformations is that most, if not all large organizations don't have any staff who have a full holistic view of the organization and how it functions, especially top management who tend to spend their lives in ivory towers, uh, lose touch with grassroots parts of the organization. So um, in the, the comment goes on into some more detail beyond that, but I think that's sort of the headline comment there is that the problem with digital transformations is that project teams and people working on the project don't take a holistic end-to-end -end business process view of their organization. I think this is a really important, well-said point because when you're going through digital transformations, the presumption is you're going through a digital transformation with the focus on transformation. You want to change your business. You want to improve your business. You don't want to just put in new technology for technology's sake. You want to materially improve the business. And that's a that's a fair and a reasonable ask for any organization that's going to spend a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of risk on a digital transformation. So the tricky part, though, is that you go through these projects and, and these big technologies that automate an entire business can get so overwhelming that it makes sense that as humans, we'd want to sort of uh, break that down into bite-sized chunks. And we end up unintentionally creating these silos on our project team where we focus on one business process or one function within our business and we go deep in that area without necessarily considering the end-to-end -end impact and this is a, a really big reason why it's so important to go through a phase zero implementation planning stage of a project before you really start your implementation so in other words you know you might sign a contract with a big software vendor to buy their software but it doesn't mean you should start implementing it on day one you should take that time up front to do the pre-work, you know, do that implementation planning, that phase zero type stuff that really gives you a blueprint and a foundation for the overall implementation. In this case, one of the, uh, or back to this example or this question, one of the most important things you can do along those lines is make sure that you are um, defining your end-to-end -end business processes and what you want that future state to be so that when you go to start to implement the technology, you're implementing the technology within the context of that uh, future state blueprint. If you don't have that future state blueprint, what ends up happening is you end up with a very siloed, myopic view of different processes and you get a very fragmented set of business processes with new technologies. And so that's the key reason why it's so important to, to do that implementation phase zero stuff up front, because the other thing you have to look at, too, is the software vendors are typically they, they just need answers to know how to configure the software. They don't necessarily care or need to care about optimizing your end-to-end -end business processes, they need to get the software to work. And those are two very different competing priorities. And so it's incumbent on you, the implementing organization, to make sure that you have a clear vision and a clear blueprint for what you want those future state business processes to be so that they can build technology that fits within that. And when they start to build the technology, they're building it more at the transactional workflow level. And you need those transactions and detailed workflows to fit within the bigger picture macro business processes that you've defined as your future state. So really well said point here that, you know, there's risks on both sides. There's risks if you customize, there's risks if you don't customize and just go standard off the shelf software. There's risks if you do a hybrid of both, uh, but either way, what you need to do to, to mitigate those risks. And the number one thing you can do to mitigate those risks is to ensure that you have a phase zero um, component in an implementation planning phase of your project to ensure that that's um, giving you that that clarity and direction that you need. So great questions. And again, if you ever uh, if you want me to answer questions on this show, you can you can drop them in the chat or, or in the comments of this podcast, wherever you're listening and watching, or you can go to my YouTube channel or any social media where 
um, you, you see me and comment or ask questions there. And we, we go through our, our team goes through and combs through those comments to pull, to cherry pick some of the questions and pull some of them onto the show. So thank you for uh, asking those great questions. So we're going to take a quick break and we come back, we're going to get into this really interesting case study at Birmingham city council in Europe. It's an Oracle implementation ultimately to, ultimately to replace a legacy SAP system spent a billion or I'm sorry, not a billion, a hundred million, uh, which is still a lot of money, hundred million dollars, us dollars on the implementation. The implementation has been a failure. And now there's questions of whether or not Oracle's the right answer. So we're going to get into this case study here in just a minute. Really interesting thing to unpack. A lot of lessons learned, good takeaways there. And then later in the show, we're going to have uh, James Roloff on the show. He's going to be uh, here to chat with us about unveiling the world of tech sales. So whether you're a sales rep uh, that sells ERP or enterprise digital technologies and services, or if you're buying from a sales rep who sells that stuff, uh, we're going to cover both angles and what you need to know about the world of tech sales. And then later in the show, we're going to have Marcus Harris on to talk about legal considerations for digital transformation, sort of building on the, the procurement and the sales process, but looking at it more from a legal perspective. So we'll have him on the show to talk about that. So be sure to stick around for that. But in the meantime, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, and I'm the CEO and founder of Third Stage Consulting. Before we dive too far into today's content, I want to invite you to learn a little bit more about Third Stage Consulting, who we are and what we do. I've included a link to a video right here that describes Third Stage in a bit more detail. It talks about our story, our history, our philosophy, our clients, our service offerings, and that sort of thing. But in general, what Third Stage Consulting does is we're an independent and tech agnostic consulting provider. We help clients through their entire digital transformation life cycles, beginning with digital strategy, software evaluation and selection, all the way through and including implementation planning, implementation readiness, and the actual implementation itself. We're technology agnostic, so we only represent our clients' best interests. We do not represent software vendors. But having said that, we work very closely with software vendors, all the leading players that you can imagine we've worked with, both in helping clients evaluate and select them, but also in helping clients implement those solutions as well. So we have a very broad, objective, agnostic view of the market that is meant to really represent your interest as you go through your digital transformation. I also encourage you to scan this QR code right here to get access to our resource center. This resource center has a ton of information, a ton of eBooks that are free. You have access to top 10 software rankings, playbooks for how to make your project more successful, guides to change management, YouTube videos, all kinds of stuff that are gonna help you through your digital transformation. So I encourage you to scan this QR code to get access to those resources. And please feel free to reach out to me directly to brainstorm ideas about your project. Even if it's just informally, you want to bounce around some ideas and get some informal advice, I'd be happy to spend some time with you. So feel free to reach out to me. I've included my contact information below. You can also find it in the description field of this video as well. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 158. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. This show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is the company I work for. Uh, Third Stage is an independent consulting firm that helps clients with software selection and implementation, uh, organizational change, data architecture, uh, integration, as well as business process improvement. So any uh, tech agnostic needs you have, you can find that through third stage consulting, 
this podcast is produced by Major Tom Productions as well. So uh, really interesting case study here that I'm going to spend really the, this remainder of the opening segment here talking about um, this, this uh, article um, in the store has been developing since late last year. And this is a case study involving an SAP replacement involving an Oracle implementation. So in other words, they're uh, it's Birmingham City Council in the UK. Uh, apparently, it is the largest public body, the largest local public body in Europe. So a very large government entity and organization. Um, they had originally decided to replace SAP ECC with Oracle Fusion ERP, which is nowadays highly unusual. You, you know, 10 or 20 years ago when I started in this space, it was more common, I feel like, to see clients replace SAP with Oracle and replace Oracle with SAP. There's more, I'd say, movement back and forth between those two vendors in particular, just because they both sort of targeted the same, a lot of the same um, types of companies, large, complex organizations. And in many cases, large, complex organizations are most likely to look at SAP S4HANA and or uh, Oracle Fusion. And in the past, like I said, it was more common to see that sort of movement from SAP to Oracle and vice versa. Now you don't see it as much. And here's a case study of a, a situation where, for some reason, Birmingham City Council decided they want to move off SAP, go to Oracle. And, and apparently Larry Ellison made a big deal about this, this deal in the sale because they had displaced SAP as the incumbent and, and won the contract over SAP. Uh, however, it's not going very well at all. Um, they basically have declared bankruptcy, um, the, the city council, and they are blaming the Oracle implementation for a big reason why they're um, filing bankruptcy. Now, to be fair, um, there's also some pay disputes that go back 10 years. So there's other issues they have. I, I think they're on the hook for over a billion dollars of back pay to employees and whatnot, or, or pay disputes of some sort. I'm not sure of the details of that, but there is other ex ex um, other extenuating factors that are adding to the, the complications here. It's not just the Oracle implementation, but they had originally budgeted about 20 million uh, pounds, which is a little bit more than that in US dollars, more like 25 million US dollars, uh, depending on what currency you prefer, but call it 20 to 25 million in either pounds or dollars um, was the original budget. And it's coming in at over 100 million pounds or 127 million US dollars um so far and it's not done yet it's still a disaster even after spending over 100 million uh, on the project uh, i guess just a few days ago or a couple of weeks ago uh, there was a city council meeting where the auditor um, that was doing an audit on the implementation was saying that the system is still not safe and compliant in terms of financial reporting and legal requirements so a lot of major issues with this project it doesn't sound like it's a usable um product or solution at this point, the way they've implemented it, at least. And uh, they, they're basically saying that uh, they, they won't be able to issue an unqualified audit um, for, for the year if they don't get this fixed soon. So a lot of, lot of uh, difficulty here with this project. Um, there's also questions now whether or not they should switch or move away from Oracle. Um, so they had, I guess, chosen Oracle back in 2019, but now there's questions of whether or not they made the right decision, whether or not they should scrap the entire implementation and move towards uh, another solution instead. Um, in June of last year, June of 2023, they, the council put together an optimization plan 
um, to, to get the project back on track. But as of December, the auditors are saying that there's still challenges with this optimization plan. It's not being, um, being effective. And they're trying to, what they're trying to do is establish a new clean instance of the software um, with a phase transfer from the current version. So in other words, they've gone live on this customized solution, but now they're trying to figure out if they can revert back to a clean instance, which presumably is going to be more standardized, more off the shelf, less customization. That's at least the perception I, I get from, from the research I've done here. Um, but you know, a lot, it's just not a good thing. I mean, you, you look at how much money and time has been spent on this and how backwards or upside down this project is, it makes you wonder if, uh, you know, putting in new technology is really the, going to solve the problem or if there's something deeper going on here in terms of how the software is getting implemented, and, um, how it's being managed, how organizational change is being managed, how business processes are being defined, et cetera. And just to give you a sense of some of the magnitude of some of the challenge they're having, in addition to just some of the regulatory reporting issues, um, there are also some material problems, uh, financial problems that are being created by this implementation. Um, as of September of 2023, uh, it's estimated that there was an error in a modification that led to unallocated transactions that are worth upwards of 100 million US dollars. So close to 100 million dollars of unallocated transactions that they can't track. And right now, so there's 100 million dollars of value lost right there. In addition to that, they're spending half a million pounds per month with temporary staff to solve the problems that are related to that. So. You look at this, um, it's not just the 100 million plus that they've spent on the implementation, it's the close to 100 million dollars in unallocated transactions, the increased labor costs just to keep the system running to solve some of these problems. And you can see how this can spiral out of control pretty quickly and, and uh, you know, where some of the challenges are coming in. So a lot, of, a lot of big challenges here with this implementation, I don't think, honestly, you know, based on what I know, and again, this isn't a client. I don't have inside information about uh, Birmingham City Council, but this is all based on just public information that I've, I've researched. Um, but I, I would have to say that it's highly unlikely in my experience and opinion that Oracle is the problem here. I think it's probably more to do with how the system is being deployed. Now, having said that, making a move from you know, years and years of using a, a big system like SAP and then moving to an Oracle, that's a pretty big jump. And that's, uh, you know, it's a cultural shift. There's a lot of skills that need to be upskilled or changed um, that I don't know if that happened or not in this case. So a lot of a lot of challenges there that need to be worked through for sure. So we'll keep an eye on that story, though. But in the meantime, I'd love to hear in the comments what you think. You know, what do you think the big reasons for this uh, Birmingham City Council debacle are? What are some of the lessons and takeaways uh, if you know any in, intel about it, I'd love to hear it in the comments. So, so drop that in the chat if you don't mind. I'd love to hear more about that. So um, interesting case study, and uh, hopefully we can get some good lessons and takeaways from that. So we're going to take a quick break and bring in our first guest. We're going to have uh, James Roloff on the show. He's going to be on with me to talk about uh, unveiling, lifting the curtain of the tech sales world within the world of uh, enterprise technologies, and business technology in general, digital transformation, ERP, all that stuff. He's going to help us understand the world of tech sales from the perspective of those of us that are in sales, as well as those of us that are engaged with or negotiating with software sales reps. So we're going to talk about both angles with him on the show here in just a moment. And then later we'll have Marcus Harris on the show. He's an attorney. He's going to be on talking about some of the legal considerations we need to keep in mind as we go through digital transformation. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. When I wake up, when I wake up. 
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 158. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. Third Stage is an independent consulting firm that helps clients with their digital transformations, including the digital strategy, the software selection, the implementation, program management, change management, basically everything you need to help make your digital transformation successful. Third Stage Consulting is the tech agnostic partner to help you do that. Uh, Third Stage is also the sponsor of this podcast. And the podcast is produced by Major Tom Productions. You can find new episodes every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. I'm excited for our next guest. He's never been on the show before, um, but there's our first time for everything. He's, he's going to be on here talking about a topic we've never covered on the show, which is really understanding and getting inside the, the minds of tech sales reps. Um, so whether you are a, a current or aspiring sales rep in the technology space or um, just as importantly, if you're a buyer or a potential buyer that's negotiating with sales reps, this is all the stuff you need to know about the world of sales and what to expect and how to how to be more successful as a salesperson if you are in sales or how to be more effective in how you buy from sales reps. We're going to cover both angles there. So with that all being said, James, welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for, for being here. And uh, tell us a little bit about you, your background, and also uh, your company, Roloff Consulting, if you don't mind. Yeah, so I'm James Roloff. Um, I've been in the, I'd say, the, the online business space since 2001. Uh, I was young then. Uh, I'm not that old. Um, but I built my first website back then. Uh, I've been doing web development and programming. Um, and then more recently, moving more into digital marketing, digital sales in the last decade. So uh, for the last decade, um, I spent my time leading a sales team at a web development firm, web application firm. Um, and then we sold that business in 2021. And then now for the last two years, I've been in Roloff Consulting. So we've been training and teaching uh, sales reps and sales teams and business owners on how to leverage digital sales uh, strategies to grow their business and kind of execute that sales strategy. Right. Right. So it's a, a you, you've sort of you've covered a lot within the world of sales and marketing and e-commerce and digital marketing, all that good stuff, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. A lot of interaction with different sales teams. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of teaching people how to leverage things like LinkedIn lives and YouTube, uh, to get more successful with their sales strategy. Interesting. Yeah. I'll, I'll be curious to ask you a little more on, on maybe the social media side here in a minute, but just to, to start, maybe just to help us set the context, what can you, can you start off by giving us an overview of enterprise technology sales? And this is maybe more from the perspective of those of us that want to 
move into sales, perhaps we're already in sales looking to further our careers, or if we're a potential enterprise buyer, you know, what, what is it like? Tell What can you tell us if you were just to summarize or give us sort of an intro to enterprise tech sales, what the different roles are and that sort of thing? Yeah. So that, that line or the definition of what is enterprise sales is a little bit blurry depending on what organization you're in um, and what you're selling. Uh, but typically when you say enterprise, you're talking about 500 person plus organizations from employee standpoint, um, or you break it down by deal size. So maybe it's like $250,000 plus in value. Um, again, you can have totally different values based on the size of the company and the, and the software you're selling to. Um, and Typically, enterprise sales are longer from a sales cycle standpoint. So you're talking about like 12 plus months of time from initial contact to close a lot of times. Um, but again, there's this huge like kind of gray area in between where it's like in between small and medium business to enterprise sales. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's probably more helpful to think it in more of terms of just the scope of how big of that transformation the project is. Um, because if you were, you know, replacing a major part of an enterprise's software or process um, and, and the dollar value is higher, that tends to lead to more of that enterprise type sales. So that's typically how I like to look at enterprise sales is more of just like, what are you actually doing and how big is that actual deal size? Gotcha. Okay. So there's um, sales reps that specialize in the larger, call it, you know, 250K of value plus or 500 employees plus or whatever the criteria in an organization or a software company might use to define uh, enterprise sales. But, it, but it, there's also, are there segments below that, like maybe non-enterprise sales that are selling to small and mid-sized companies as well? Yeah, exactly. There's kind of that small to medium-sized business sale. Um, and you bring up a great point that it's a different skill set from a rep and it's different activities involved for enterprise sales than there are for small to medium-sized sales. Because a lot of times for small to medium-sized sales, you're talking about you know a shorter sales cycle. It's more activity based of I wouldn't say churn and burn, but it's kind of more of a, a set process. You're moving somebody through. Where enterprise sales is a lot more about understanding the business a lot deeper, bringing in different key stakeholders, building that relationship, and then kind of custom tailoring what you're doing based on that enterprise's need. Um, where again, that small to medium sized business is much more of like a traditional sales type role. So I think. Yeah, it's a really important kind of framing to know that it's a different skill set and different activities involved in enterprise sales versus that small to medium sized business sales. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So, are there um, are there certain? Well, before I ask you that question, let me back up a little bit. But what are the different um, when you look at sales? It's not you know, especially if you're selling larger solutions like multi-million dollar solutions or if you're a buyer that's buying from a sales team typically it's not just one salesperson you've got multiple people that are involved in a sales pursuit so like yeah if i work for a big fortune 500 company and i want to buy some erp software or erm software or whatever some big software purchase and services to go along with that i'm probably dealing with a team rather than one person like how are what are some of the major roles though within a sales team that, that i might interact with or if I'm going to be a salesperson, you know, what are the different roles I should be aware of uh, on a sales team? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the best analogy I've heard is kind of like a football team. Um, and so your account rep, if you are the, the main rep on an account, you're kind of like the quarterback um, of this kind of, you know, calling out the plays as they're happening um, and, and making people do their thing. Um, but you also have people above you. So you have like your executives that are maybe moving the deal forward from different perspectives or negotiating with software vendors and so software, software partners to get discounts on behalf of the client. Um, and obviously any kind of concessions they can make from a, a firm standpoint. 
Now, a lot of times too, you have people lower from the totem pole <laughs> from a sales perspective. So think like BDRs um, or marketing support staff, they're helping to bring in leads. That might be that first point of contact for a lot of people. If you reach out to a vendor or an implementer, you might talk to someone on that BDR team or that marketing team first, and then get pushed into a sales rep after the fact. And then beyond that too, you know, for enterprise sales, a lot of times you're bringing people from the operation side of a business. Um, so consultants or process experts that might be involved um, as part of the implementation, but bringing them on earlier on in the process uh, so they can correctly scope things out, make sure that from a technical perspective, all the needs are being met of the client too. So there's a lot of moving parts in an enterprise deal, which kind of goes back to the difference between enterprise and small to medium-sized business is that that rep really has to be good at calling those plays and making things happen and knowing when to pull certain people in. Um, Cause if you're not good at that skill, you're going to flop uh, from an enterprise perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a one man or one woman sort of proposition to, to be able to make those, those larger, more complex sales, I imagine. Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Very good. Well, before I get to my next question, just to turn to the <clears> audience <throat> real quick, just to look where, where people are joining from today. Uh, thanks for, for commenting. Those of you that did on, on where you're joining from in the world today. Uh, here's someone I think, you know, uh, James. <laughs> yep. I'm going to roll off where she has the same last name as you on the other yep. side of the wall from James in Wisconsin. So uh, thanks Emma for joining here today. She's been on the show as well. Uh, Emma Rolla. And then um, also got uh, Tim from Connecticut. Thanks for being here today. Um, got someone from uh, Alberta, Canada, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, et cetera. So thanks for uh, everyone that they commented here. Um, also curious. I also asked the question, what, you know, kind of, why are you here? What are you looking to learn? Are you, are you coming at this from a sales rep perspective or from the perspective of someone who is buying or negotiating with or engaging with salespeople in your organization? Um, this is from Jeremy on LinkedIn. He says, been in many work tech enterprise sales cycles over the various years. Curious what might be new and different in the year ahead. So it sounds like, uh, Jeremy's in the world of sales. And then uh, a follow-up comment to something you mentioned a, a moment ago, uh, James, uh, Timothy on LinkedIn says, years ago, um, a division of Gartner did a study and shared that in enterprises, once the deal size was over 50K, the number of people on the buyer side was eight people who all had to sign up before a deal was established. Have you seen that number going up or down? So I guess yeah. maybe another way to frame it is, you know, how from a buyer's perspective, you know, how, how big or complex is that buying group usually for some of these larger enterprise deals that we're talking about here? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, the, and there's a lot of good data on that, you know, as, as far as influencers versus decision makers, who's got signing power, you know, who can only say no, but, you know, but can't say yes to your deal, kind of the, the typical cliche yeah. stuff you hear in sales. Um, so I think that numbers has kind of stayed the same. Um, obviously, you know, below those eight people are people that influence those people's decisions and, and the process too. Um, but that also brings up a great point with enterprise sales. And that's that a good enterprise sales rep is bringing those stakeholders in early and not waiting until you're kind of three fourths the way through the deal and then trying to bring them in and trying to win them over. Um, yeah. so that's a big mistake I see a lot of times with sales teams is that they go after just the decision maker. They go really, really far and the deal stalls because wait a second, there's actually five more people that need to approve this piece of technology or the process we're trying to change. Um, so trying to bring those stakeholders in at the appropriate time is a really big part of a good, successful enterprise sales strategy. Mm, okay. Yeah. And, and kind of along those lines, leading into another question, then, you know, what, in addition to some of those tactics you just mentioned, what are some of the skills that you've seen be most effective and most successful with, with successful sales reps? Yeah. 
I mean, my number one skill that I was hired for was and like an entrepreneurial spirit. So someone who kind of has that like mind that they're running their own little show um, and they're able to take ownership of their entire process and build their own relationships and do their own thing. And they're not afraid to try things. They're able to take risks. Um, so they're kind of like a mini entrepreneur that's embedded within an organization. That's, that's typically the kind of skill set that I'm looking for uh, from a sales perspective. But beyond that entrepreneurial mindset, um, again, it's cliche as true of probably any role, but like a very optimistic mindset is very important too. Um, cause there's such a big roller coaster when it comes to doing enterprise sales. Cause a lot of times you're talking about maybe closing three to five de deals a year. Um, and so if two of those deals don't make it or they get pushed or whatever, you're kind of down in the dumps, but you need to keep that positive attitude, uh, when you're going through things, and it's not so you can't ever feel bad, but, um, sales reps who are naysayers or whatever they're not they're not going to make it so i think optimism is a big part of it too yeah. um and the last thing i want to say is probably persistence like you have to be very persistent um and you can't let off the gas pedal when you're doing deals like this so that's something that you can't have someone who waffles on should i make an activity or not which kind of goes back to the entrepreneurial mindset right like they're willing to take risks they're willing to take an action see what happens um because you kind of need that in the sales world yeah yeah we're here at James Roloff talking about unveiling the world of technology sales. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 158. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. This show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys. And the show is produced by Major Tom Productions. We're here with James Roloff talking about the world of tech sales, both from the perspective of sales reps and aspiring sales reps, but also from the perspective of those that are buying from technology salespeople. So with that all being said, let's jump back into the conversation. Are there other skills or blind spots that will undermine your ability to be successful in, in sales? Yeah. I mean, I think if you get too caught up in, this is again true of probably most roles, but you get too caught up in politics and you're not, not letting things go. Um, that really can just stop your ability from, from doing things. So I, I think that's a big part of it is, is that, um, again, kind of on the opposite side of things, like not willing to take risks, not willing to make that call, not willing to do something is a big part of it. Um, and then this is, uh, kind of abstract, but I would say too, if you don't have the intention to actually serve your customer, you know, you see a lot of sales reps that are just trying to make this, make the sale that works in small business or quick, quick, smaller level sales, but it doesn't come across in enterprise sales. If you don't actually get invested in the success of your client, 
it will show and it'll affect your sales figures too. So I'd say that you have to have more of that servant mindset going into it versus more of that. I'm just trying to make a quick buck. Yeah. Yeah. More of a kind of a service-based approach, you know? Yes. Yeah. And that, and part of that, I imagine, you know, one thing you haven't mentioned yet is, you know, really understanding and listening to what the buyer wants. I imagine that's a pretty, pretty important skill or soft intangible skill that, reps need to have is that would you agree with that yeah that's, that's a really good point so i think and there's there's been some good studies on this too uh the book gap selling talks about this i think it cites a gartner study actually um but sales reps that listen more than they talk are more successful right so i, I think the ratio is like if they listen 60 70 percent of the time on calls and now there's like software tools that show you how often you're talking on those calls and stuff too uh but if you listen more than you talk that's a good sign um, and you know, one of those traits that kind of goes into entrepreneurial is kind of that like curiosity, creativity side of things. Um, uh, cause that was one thing with my reps, if they were able to go into a business and get really curious about how that business works and who's involved, how they started the business and why they're doing things. And basically just kind of interview that, that business during those discovery calls versus simply looking like, do they have the budget? Do they have the time frame? Do they have the kind of the band, the typical stuff, right? Like any person can, you know, ask those basic, basic questions. But if you are actually curious about how that business works and what their problem is and kind of treat yourself almost like a doctor is trying to find the root problem, that's a much more successful sales rep. So I don't know if curiosity is the right word. Um, so I don't, I don't think just strictly listening is like the answer. I think it's a deeper level. It's more of a mindset thing than it is simply an activity thing. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And really just trying to dig in and understand and ask good questions and, you know, help help the customer, the potential customer articulate things that they may not have fully articulated yet, you know, because you think about enterprise technologies or any sort of solution sale, you know, a lot of times it's a solution that the client's not familiar with or experienced with. So it's your job to figure out you know, kind of what their hot buttons are, and what their needs are and really dig into it and under, understand. I think that's a a curiosity mindset's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that we push hard on from our consulting perspective is making sure people are trusted advisors and educators in the sales process. Like I guess, you know, if I was kind of some of our approach in general, it's that the best salespeople are educators and they're out there trying to teach their prospects and their customers about their products and solutions, as well as the underlying problem too. Um, because you should be that trusted expert in the area. This is something when it comes to the arc of an enterprise sales rep, you really can't jump into enterprise sales right away. You kind of need to learn the industry because you need to have that knowledge so that you can ask the right questions and you can really help people undercover their problems and then teach them about those problems so that by the time it comes to actually make the sale, it's a no brainer because they've, they've, they've trusted you along that process because you've helped them understand the actual problem they're facing too. So that's a big, I think, mistake I see a lot of times with newer sales reps is they try and jump right into the big deals. But if you don't understand what you're selling and understand how it fits into your customer's life and solves the problem, you're going to really struggle with being successful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. And uh, here's a here's a comment from uh, Carmen on LinkedIn, which is an interesting follow up. She says uh, mindset is very important. EQ with consistent branding and outreach. Your personal brand is important. How you walk and integrity of what you say you're going to do is important. Uh, so yes. 100 EQ, you know, EQ, how, how important is EQ to, to being a good salesperson? Uh, I, th I think it's pretty important. Um, I, I would actually put 
personal branding. And I, I kind of hate the term personal brand. I'm slowly coming around to it, but yeah. I call it more of like uh, authority, right? Like, are, are you an authoritative figure? Do you have that, that trusted advisor um, reputation? Um, I almost think that's more important than EQ sometimes because people will buy from people that they trust will get the deal done. You can't have like no emotional ability. <laughs> you can't yeah. be like totally dead. And EQ is definitely a huge benefit. But I do think we will buy from people that are kind of weird or kind of awkward or have issues with, you know, the emotional side of things um, if they can truly solve our problems and they're really good at helping us understand our problems too. And they have a good solution for it. So I will say like, you know, that building up that personal brand, which is again, something that we kind of focus on. And Emma's part of that, that sphere too, obviously is as a sales rep, you should be out there educating in public and you should be out in front of people, helping them provide value at scale. Um, obviously, with your customers, you're providing one-on-one one-on-one help and one-on-one value. But a good sales rep nowadays is active on LinkedIn. They're posting content. They're doing things so that they come across as that trusted advisor. Should they come across so that people know that they are that trusted advisor in that sales process? Um, so I think that's a huge part of it. I think that yeah, Carmen makes a great point there. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And, and you bring up another sort of interesting thread here with um, you know the authority mentioned before. Um, tell us about your your workshop a little bit, this, this coaching program you, you guys do and, and what are some of the things you, you help sales reps do that are along those lines, like in terms of creating that authority and that perceived authority and all that stuff. Yeah. So we just launched the catalyst community about two months ago, which is a online community, um, Slack channel, weekly calls, uh, weekly educational content. And really the, the goal of it is to help sales reps and small business owners, build online authority, build that personal brand through usually creating content and through building their platforms um, so they can expand the reach and ultimately generate more revenue. Uh, but the goal is really to get people active and comfortable with being that online teacher so they can provide that value at scale that helps them build that authority. So that's really the kind of the, the gist of what we're doing from a training perspective. Yeah. And do and you do that from the perspective of helping sales professionals find opportunities and leads, or is it more about reinforcing and sort of augmenting a particular sales pursuits and things of that nature, if that makes sense? No, it does. Yeah. So it's not as much like um, outreach focused, right? It's a lot more inbound focused and outbound focused uh, in the sense that you are really out there putting value out at scale, teaching people through the content that you create. I mean, you're a prime example of that, right? With all the content you produce, that you're out there providing value for free at scale, People see you, they trust you, and they reach out to you to get that help. Um, so it's kind of that inbound lead perspective. But anyone who does this will tell you that it helps active deals too. If you have a pipeline and people are connected with you on LinkedIn and they see you talking about the problem, you're talking about solving you know, in the boardroom discussions too, that helps reinforce the value you provide. It helps you win more deals too. So it's not just about lead generation. It's actually about like improving close rate and kind of building trust across the entire pipeline. Yeah, yeah, super, super interesting. And, uh, and it's interesting to hear you say that because when you first said it, I was thinking, okay, that's a great inbound, you know, way to create, um, you know, some leads or whatever. But it, it's a really good point that it, you're also reinforcing your value and adding another layer of 
engagement with a, with buyers or potential buyers that you might already be working with. That's super interesting. Oh yeah, we're, we're talking about a 12 month sales cycle. You know, it's very, very common that your contacts will, will connect with you on LinkedIn or whatever platform you're on, subscribe to your newsletter, whatever content you're doing that you're putting out that authoritative you know, information, it's a very good chance they'll connect with you and they'll kind of get that slow drip of good value from you, even outside of your normal sales discussions and sales meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Build that trust, authority, all the things yep. I mentioned a moment ago. What do you see as the general future or prospects for the sales profession within technology and technology related services? So I think like a lot of things in the world, there's kind of becoming this split of some parts of the market are struggling and some are doing really well. Uh, so I think the kind of going off what we're just talking about, the sales reps that are able to put on that teacher hat and be providing value at scale and running these large complex deals and have the ability to do so, they're going to do really well. And I can tell you, you know, from what I'm seeing, th those jobs are still in demand. Uh, companies want reps that can do that. And if you have a personal brand, like not in like the fluffy sense, but like the actual like people trust you and you are a resource, uh, you are in demand right now still. On the flip side, like many things, you know, those smaller deals or more transactional based deals, those are moving away uh, faster and faster and being replaced by automated signups or marketplaces within different uh, platforms and ecosystems. So that'd be one thing that, you know, if you are in the sales career, you should be trying to develop those skills, allow you to not even just enterprise sales, but it's more of those you know, personal value based skills. Um, that's going to help you stay relevant. Um, and the last thing I'd say too, is just from a, uh, a software side of things, you know, there's some changes amiss as far as resellers and selling directly and that kind of thing. So I do think that if you are trying to sell technology, uh, trying to sell direct is a good thing too, versus trying to go with the resellers, because there are some weird changes that some resellers are making and mergers and changes that will lead to a, a potential big shift in your company quickly. So that'd be the other thing I would just say is just trends amongst tech is that um, those relationships are always changing between the, the implementers and the actual software providers too. Yeah. We're here at James Roloff talking about unveiling the world of technology sales. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. I'm excited to share our newly released 2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 158. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. This show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys. And the show is produced by Major Tom Productions. We're here with James Roloff talking about the world of tech sales, both from the perspective of sales reps and aspiring sales reps, but also from the perspective of those that are buying from technology salespeople. So with that all being said, let's jump back into the conversation. What uh, what skills do you think are most important for sales reps? Love to hear from the audience and 
while while you're commenting on that, maybe I'll shift gears a little bit here, James. And we've been talking a lot about sales professionals. If you're a if you're in a, in the sales profession and you're looking to be more effective, you know, what are some tips to be more successful? But let's shift gears and talk about the other side of the table now. If you're a, a CIO or a CFO or some sort of buyer within an organization that is negotiating with or interacting with sales reps from a software vendor or services company, whatever it may be, um, what are some of the what are some of the things to be aware of uh, if you're a buyer when you're buying from and negotiating with uh, tech sales reps? Yeah, that's a great question. You're probably good at answering this as much as I am, <laughs> but I do think uh, it's important to really trust and understand what you're buying um, and not fall and be hoodwinked by providers and sales tactics and things. Um, I see a lot of companies that go after that shiny object when it comes to tech. Uh, they focus on features and whatever you know fancy demo they're getting. But the sales rep never actually understands their business. They never actually really get to know the customer and understand what they're trying, what problem they're trying to solve. Um, so if you feel like you're being you're moving too quickly and you're being sold on something and you don't don't feel comfortable with it, stop, ask questions, understand that. Um, just from like a basic perspective, any good sales team or, or provider should be able to give you really strong references. That you can talk and talk and like, you know, understand, did they actually solve things? Um, it was, was the timeline I actually met. How was the budget? Um, so actually follow up with those references that they get you um, so that you know that the provider you're working with um, has actually done these things before and, and been successful with them. Um, Cause I see that happen often where people kind of oversell what they can do. So I would say ask for, ask for referrals or references in your actual industry. People like you um, is a big part of it. Uh, and then obviously some basic things like, you know, timeline budget, how often are they actually met? Um, because I think that a lot of times when you see timeline, that was a, that was a big thing for me work with my reps is that, I didn't, I didn't want to lose a deal because of timeline. Obviously no one wants to, um, but you don't want to be untruthful to your provide, you know, to your prospects saying, Oh, I can, I can do that in six months when really, you know, it's going to take nine months to do. Um, so I think having those honest discussions and you want to find sales reps or companies, firms that are honest with you. Um, and so don't just look for the answer you want, look for the answer. That's the honest answer. So I know it was kind of hard to say that, but like, it's one of those things that, uh, sometimes what I'll run into from a sales perspective is that the buyer thinks they know what they want. And so the sales reps or vendors are talking to will try and give them the answer they want, mm. but it won't be, it won't be the truthful answer. Right. So I think kind of part of it as a buyer is having the humility of saying, okay, I'm going to find a vendor I can trust. And when they give me an answer, I'm going to have to be okay with it, even though it's not the time frame I wanted or the cost I wanted or the features I wanted. Um, but understanding how having that mutual trust is a really important part of a good, successful implementation of any project. Yeah. Yeah. You, you bring up some really interesting thoughts here. Kind of a follow up to it is, is if I'm a, if I'm a buyer and let's assume that I'm not dealing with um, someone with the highest IQ, EQ, I should say, yeah. um, they have not the highest level of emotional intelligence. They, they may not necessarily be fully understanding or trying to understand my needs and how my company is different or my needs are different. And um, a lot of, in our industry, it seems as though there's a, there's a sort of a movement to sell, you know, best practices or standards, you know, cookie cutter approaches that, are meant to accelerate a software deployment or make software easier to use and things that are well-intentioned, but 
when you're selling that, sometimes you create these, uh, these false expectations or unrealistic expectations about what it really takes to go through, you know, all the changes that need to happen to deploy software. So I guess my question is, how do you, if you're a buyer, how do you see through that? Like if you get a sales rep who doesn't have the most, you know, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say they're, they're trying to hoodwink you or intentionally, yeah. trying to you, but they're selling you some sort of standard methodology, cookie cutter approach that may not fit your needs. How do you see through that or how do you dig into that if you're a potential buyer? Yeah, that's a really good question. That's probably the most common thing that you see, right? Is that you have sales reps that get sales training on a process and you run people through it. That's what you do, right? Yeah. Um, it's like, and obviously it's sales is a profession and you want to get good at your skills. So you read books and you get take sales training, do different things. But what that can create is kind of these robots that don't actually um, sell to the customer. They kind of just ran them through a process. Um, obviously having a process is a good thing and having a template is a good thing when it comes to making sure the quality is there um, and that you know you're actually delivering correctly uh, but to your to your question though that goes i think back to talking to references um, and really understanding like is what they're saying actually what happens right like or even like asking them like how many of your projects stay on budget how many of your projects stay on timeline um, and obviously they can lie, but then you have a whole different other ethical issue when it comes to lying. Um, but I, I think really understanding how that firm works is a really important part of that process. And to me, that almost comes back to, do you trust that team that you're working with? Have you met, you know, not just the sales reps, but the people that will be managing the project for you or the people that will be consulting on the project for you and having, I guess the easiest way to kind of tell is that there's discrepancies in who's saying what when you're talking to different people when it comes to time frame and budget and, and implementation and just kind of looking for red flags. Um, and I'll, I'll say in that too, that if you see multiple red flags in the buying process, stop, take a breather, look at different options. Um, I've seen so many companies ignore red flags and then, you know, cause they, they want to get it done again on timeline or whatever it might be. And then it comes in and bites them in the butt so much harder because all of a sudden it's a two-year thing because they had to start and stop and it costs twice as much. And so don't ignore those red flags when you're having those discussions uh, because oftentimes there's something there that probably needs to be investigated. Yeah. Yeah. And along those lines too, um, you know, with, with the whole movement of a lot of these, so a lot of these legacy uh, enterprise technology vendors had on-premise solutions and they're sunsetting their, their, products that the on-premise products to move customers to the cloud and what they're doing which is an interesting sales tactic is to say you know we've got a deadline of support for the old legacy products and you've got until whatever year 2027 or 2029 or whatever year the vendor has arbitrarily said it says you need to be on these new cloud systems by this date are you seeing like a vendor strategies like that does that undermine the trust that sales reps need to build with with buyers to be successful yeah and that, that whole process is an absolute mess to me <laughs> kind of been, you know watching that that side of things um because nine times out of ten you know the the software vendor will allow it to run longer than they say they're going to allow it to run and all of that um, but i've seen so many companies look at alternatives because they're, they're being kind of force-fed these upgrades um, which like, rightly so, like if you're not, if you're not ready for it, or if you can't budget it, you know, you weren't, you weren't realizing you're going to have this major expense coming up. Um, that is a tactic that I've seen, uh, played out a lot. So I would just say kind of, again, hit that pause button. If that's the case, it doesn't mean you should leave that software vendor because they're doing that, but you know, that is something that comes up pretty often. Um, I will say though, 
from what I've seen, there's some great opportunities to negotiate when that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times vendors will throw these, these big renewal packages at you for this upgraded solution. Um, and I would highly recommend you use that as a negotiation point saying like, we're not ready to do this. Like, can you make us ready to do this based on giving us a good offer here? Um, because a lot of times, you know, a lot of times those newer cloud-based uh, software implementations for them are a lot of times more scalable. So they can, they can offer different discounts on them and stuff too. So it'd be one thing, not every vendor, not every software company offers good discounts, but I wouldn't say that's an opportunity there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do time-based sales generally work? Is that generally a good tactic to say, you know, a lot of the vendors, whether it's arbitrary deadlines to move to the cloud or even just a period end sort of incentive. Like if, if I can get this deal done by end of the quarter, end of the month, end of the week, end of the day, whatever, um, I'll give you a huge discount. Is that, is that a, an effective tactic? Cause we see it a lot. I'm just curious if you, if you think it's, it works. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. So I, I think it depends on what you're selling. It depends on the software, it depends on the technology. Um, it does move the needle sometimes. I think there's some cases where, you know, companies really, uh, they expect some sort of concession coming from the vendor. So uh, you, you kind of have to come forward with something, but I will say like, I've seen a lot of sales reps kind of do like the Hail Mary approach to discounts, you know, like they probably aren't going to close that deal. So they'll throw kind of a Hail Mary like out there and say, okay, you know, maybe I'll get it done by this end of this quarter if I throw a 10% discount or a 20% discount at them. Um, and almost always that doesn't close. Like usually, usually if, if price isn't the issue and the issue they're not moving forward is not because of price, it's more because of timeline or other things that are happening in the business. It doesn't really make sense to throw throw discounts out at them. But on the flip side, as as a buyer, it's always a good thing to ask for those things and see what kind of incentives you can offer. A lot of times, knowing that they're probably going to come back with some sort of timer or some sort of stipulation on it, um, it's it's still good to go through that process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. We I had a, a client several years ago that um, it was end of year and they were they were evaluating a, a potential software solution and they had narrowed down to that one vendor that was sort of their preferred vendor, but they still hadn't gotten sort of the, the CFO was still working to get sort of that internal alignment and approval to do the full implementation. Uh, but they gave them an end of year deal, like a massive discount to get the contract signed on, on New Year's Eve, the last day of the year. And uh, they signed the contract, got a huge savings, but then they never implemented the software because um, they could never get the, you know, they never got the budget, never got the support internally to actually do the project but they bought this huge, massive, expensive ERP system. So, you know, sometimes it could backfire, but it, I mean, if you know you're going to move forward and you know, you know, like you said, if time is not an issue or timing's not an issue or a concern, then sure, maybe that that period end discount could could be a something that rocks it off center. Yeah, that, that's where I think kind of being a good buyer is a good thing, right? Like having people on your team that know the tactics that are used from a sales perspective like that, because you can get, I won't say tricks the right word, but it's one of those things that if you're not ready, you're not ready. Um, yeah. So, and discounts come back around. There's always another quarter that you can ask for something too. So I, I wouldn't frame it in that perspective by any means. Yeah. So I think you alluded this a little bit earlier, but I'll, I'll ask it again and maybe we can go a little deeper here. But um, as a buyer, how do you, how do you ensure that you're, protecting your interests and, and getting the information you need from sales reps. I know you talked before about um, talking to references and doing your due diligence, but maybe we could dig into that a little bit. You know, what, what is it, if I'm a buyer, what's my responsibility to ensure that I'm not getting tricked or hoodwinked or um, maybe even unintentionally information, key information that I need to know is being left out. Maybe I have a sales rep that's not educational. They're not 
acting with authority and teaching and all the stuff you talked about earlier. Um, on the flip side, how do I, what do I do, you know, if I'm a buyer and, you know, what are my responsibilities to ensure that, that uh, you're getting complete information, protecting your own interests? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it's kind of layers to it, right? Um, I do think I kind of said it before, but if you if you feel uncomfortable with how something, something's happening, that's a good chance to kind of pause and talk to other vendors um, just because you have someone, just because you have a deal that's kind of progressing with one vendor or two vendors doesn't mean you can't stop for a second and talk to somebody else. Um, there is, depending on what you're buying, there's a lot of value in bringing in consultants that, that do this, you know, over and over again, um, because they, they are used to this process. They know all the vendors, they know all the partners, they can provide references for you. Um, so I do think, you know, if you're talking about a piece of technology that you're going to buy once every decade, it's probably worth to pay extra to have someone come in that actually knows what they're, what they're buying. Um, especially if your team is not used to buying something like that. It's been, a, you know, 10, 15 years since last time you've really in earnest looked at replacing a major part of your technology stack. That's probably good to bring somebody in uh, to help out with that too. Um, kind of an underrated uh, thing that you can do with some vendors and some implementers is, you know, ask them if they can do some sort of paid discovery with you um, or some sort of like paid proof of concept with you. I think that's something that's really underutilized. That's like a very good investment um, of if, if you're not sure that the whole process and architecture of what they're proposing is quite right, you don't quite feel comfortable with it, you know, asking them, hey, can we do some sort of paid engagement, like a 90 day paid engagement where your team comes in, um, you know, and looks at our processes and talks about how the software is going to integrate and kind of roadmaps things that way. And nine times out of 10, they'll offer to roll that into the cost of the actual project if you move forward. But worst case scenario, you know, you pay a probably a good chunk of money, but not nearly the same as picking the wrong software, um, wrong software or, you know, the implementation services and all of that. So I think that's something that I recommend uh, people look at is you, you can't ask a vendor to do a lot of work for you before that sale happens. Um, but if you want to see what kind of value they can provide and what kind of solution they're really trying to get at, saying, is there some sort of paid engagement we can do now? And they'll be happy to hear that too, because that knows that it's a it's a mutual partnership, mutual relationship, um, and that you're not trying to just get free services out of them. Because on the flip side, you know, as, as a vendor, I've gotten free discovery roadmap things given from my competitors saying like, hey, I want to buy this from you, right? So um, I think a lot, of, a lot of vendors are burned by giving too much information when it comes to like custom planning information, because a lot of times buyers will take that to their preferred vendor and say, here's what somebody else did for me. But if you're offering to pay for it, I think that's a really good option too. So um, that, that would probably be something I would say, you know, getting an outside consultant or someone that really knows that buying process and then offering to some sort of paid discovery or paid proof of concept is a great way to, to feel a lot more comfortable going into the process. Yeah. We're here at James Roloff talking about unveiling the world of technology sales. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn a third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us 
and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 158. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. This show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys. And the show is produced by Major Tom Productions. We're here with James Roloff talking about the world of tech sales, both from the perspective of sales reps and aspiring sales reps, but also from the perspective of those that are buying from technology salespeople. So with that all being said, let's jump back into the conversation. Interesting comment from uh, Liberty on YouTube. Liberty says there's a lot of leverage the customer does not realize when the vendor offers an upgrade to a cloud solution because the vendor is normally saving overhead. So they have an incentive to move you. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a big one. I think and what's, what's, what's so hard is, you know, it really depends on the vendor too. You know, if it's a, if it's a vendor, it's a publicly traded company, they have different motives. Um, if it's a PE owned company, they have different motives. And if it's a you know privately held company that's not PE owned, they have different incentives. So um, kind of knowing your vendors and knowing their structure and their incentives um, is a good thing to, to know going into the process too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Knowing what leverage you, you do have and, and that sort of thing, that's a, that's a great point. Um, Kyler on LinkedIn likes your coffee cup, James. So I, I didn't yeah, see Yeah, thanks. It. My mom uh, for Christmas every year gives oh. us like these fancy little coffee cups. So that's nice. <laughs> that's what I got hand-painted. Not nice. from my mother, but she buys them hand-painted. Nice. <laughs> I didn't notice that. So good uh, good eye there, Kyler. And uh, Kyler had a, a question to uh, follow up here. Um, are audiences becoming savvy with AI-generated content? How important is intentional content creation for authenticity? So. You know, maybe another way to frame it is, you know, how is AI affecting or is AI affecting um, sales reps and, and the ability to create that authenticity and the authority and all the stuff you've talked about so far? Yeah, that's that's a great question. That's it goes a lot to what we do from a, a sales training perspective, um, because AI is becoming a lot more prominent like from a content perspective. Um, and I think people who are used to seeing AI or, or use the tools themselves can see it on like a LinkedIn feed right away and say, okay, I recognize this pattern. Like, you know, it's got a bunch of weird emojis in it and hashtags at the bottom and whatever else. Um, but there's ways to do it where, you know, you're, you're customizing it and using the AI to brainstorm content or outline content for you and then building out yourself. Uh, but to her question, yeah, I think people are becoming more and more, um, you know, just kind of sick of seeing AI content or they're getting kind of used to seeing it. So, we are big, big proponents of video um, and short form video. Again, Eric, you're good at it. You're, we're here right now. We're talking on camera. We can't have AI. Well, we could have AI fake this probably pretty soon, but um, yeah. it's pretty hard to do that. Yeah, no one would ever know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but that, that, you know, short form video is a great thing, especially for sales reps, because you are people that are on calls all day long. You are used to answering the same questions over and over again to your prospects. You know what statements you make provide value, you know the problems really well. So again, this goes back to being a really good teacher, a really good educator, um, but there's no reason sales reps at least once a week shouldn't record a 30 second, 60 second video answering a common question that they get from their from their prospects, uploading it to LinkedIn, having a couple paragraphs to accompany it. That's the kind of stuff that AI can't fake um, and it really helps you build up your personal authority. Yeah, 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 it's very, very true. And 
you know, you think about AI generated content, um, maybe just a broader pattern too, is that, you know, blogging and, and LinkedIn posts, text posts are fine, but there's something about video that people connect with more. You know, you can see the person, you get a feel for the personality, things that you wouldn't get through just posting an article or whatever may be on, online. So I think, do you, do you see that video is more effective in building connections and trust than any perfectly worried blog or, you know, text that it might be created? Yeah, hundred percent. I'm, I'm sure there's good data on this too. Um, but the best thing you can hear as a sales rep who's doing some sort of digital strategy is that the first time you meet someone, they say, I feel like I already know you because yes. they, see, they see so much of your content. I'm sure you've heard it, Eric, too, from all the yeah. content you do. Yeah. Um, if you're at a networking event or with prospects and they say, I feel like I already know you, that means that like they already have that weird, you know, trust, even though it's it's, it's kind of a strange thing because like, you don't know them. Like they're just someone who's lurking. They probably, they probably never comment. They probably never like on your on your content. Um, but that to me is a sign that a sales rep or a business owner, whatever you are in an organization, um, that you are doing it right. If someone says that, because that means that you're coming across super authentic and you're providing value in the content you're creating. So that's always a really good measurement of you know you're doing well if you're able to get those comments made to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good litmus test for sure, and it it tells you too that not that the deal is done or that you've been successful in closing a deal, but it tells you you're in a good position and you're doing the right thing. You're doing a good thing to help your prospects of or your conversion rate or close rate, whatever. Um, if you, if you have that sort of connection from someone. Yeah, no, absolutely. Which is something we didn't really bring up either. You know, that, um, there's, there's cases where your product as a sales rep, your product or service is not the right fit for your customer. It's kind of like not quite, you know, it's a little adjacent, but maybe someone else is better for it. Um, and those sales reps that are more educational, consultative, they build that reputation, not only by creating content, but, but again, but also being direct with their customers too. Um, cause again, that's probably another thing I see pretty often is that you have a tech solution that could be configured to be, you know, solve the customer's problem, but kind of like half halfway do it versus, you know, a software solution that's truly the best, uh, best fit for it. And these sales reps that are successful will lose do deals and lose opportunities because they're not right fit, but be honest and refer maybe even to like a potential, you know, adjacent competitor saying like, Hey, you should really go talk to them. Like they're a better fit for you. That comes back to you in your sales career going forward. But that's one thing from a, from a buyer perspective. Uh, just be aware that some sales reps might try and jam you into something that isn't the right fit. But you want to find those sales reps that are truly, you know, trusted advisors, consultants, that are working on your behalf to find the right solution. And one of the telltale signs of people like that is that they're willing to do things like saying, Hey, I don't think we're the right fit for this. You know, you should talk to so-and-so instead. Um, yeah. so that, that's definitely a big part of that authenticity and building that trust too. Yeah. Yeah. And that usually comes back around. I mean, there's been times where we've done that, you know, as a company, you tell someone, Hey, this isn't a good fit and here's why here's someone that can do a better job. And they'll end up coming back to you later. A lot of times like, Hey, you weren't a good fit that, but we remember, you know, because it stands out when you tell someone that and when you're that honest and they'll oh, yeah. have to remember and come back to you, you know, when they do have a need that fits your, your offering. Yeah. Either, either that person or a lot of times within 12 months, you'll get a, a message you know, connecting, connecting you to someone who is the right buyer for you from that person yeah. too. So it's all, it's always worth it to do that from a sales perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had this one client um, that I was really disappointed to not get, you know, is, is one of those, you know, um, one of those prospects you're, you're just enamored by. It's a big company, well-known company, et cetera. And the buyer, you know, they ended up not going with, with us, our firm at the time. And 
but he kept referring like other CIOs to us. So like he wasn't referring the one he actually chose. He was referring us to, to other, um, other companies. And then he left and went to a new company and then he hired us. So, you know, the, the, the individual buyer uh, left and, and hired us at a new company. So that stuff, you know, if you play the long game, which is hard sometimes in sales, cause you're focused on quarterly numbers and things like that. But if you do play the long game, usually you're going to build up a, a pretty repeatable pipeline, you know, based on that trust and people referring other people to you and being repeat buyers and all that stuff. Yeah. Go, going back to the comment earlier about the eight different buyers, that happens often, right? That maybe maybe one over four people, but the four sellers said no. Um, but a lot of times that does come back around to you. Or again, enterprise sales, people leave companies, they change positions, and all of a sudden you have a, a big fan and some new company too. So it's, it's always worth it to not be not be salty, which goes back to like being optimistic from a sales perspective because that stuff comes back around for sure. Yeah. 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 Not be too too down if you if you lose out on a sale that wasn't wasn't a good fit. Um, well, what um, I guess if we're if we're looking at um, those that are interested in or already in sales, what are you know what's some closing advice that you would you would give to to people wanting to further their career in the sales profession? Yeah, so this is going to be the obvious answer off the gate, but you know, do stuff like start to build up your online authority, your personal brand. Um, you know, the, the biggest recommendation I have is just pretend you're an educator in your space, right? So mm-hmm. in order to be a good educator, you have to learn yourself. So you have to dive in, you have to do things, you have to work with clients on stuff and then teach people what you learn. So teach, teach what you're seeing, um, you know, basically tell the, tell the world at large, um, the experience you're getting and help them understand your, your industry, the problems you solve and the products you have. So, um, definitely building up that personal authority online is a big thing, which again, broken record, but I did it, you do it. Like it's one of those things that it definitely works from a sales perspective. Um, and then under underrated, um, or underutilized suggestion would be work for a good company. (laughs) Um, I see a lot of sales reps who have a lot of potential who just sit at bad companies because, you know, it's, it's the inertia of changing companies sometimes that, that can be, be rough. Um, but it is a night and day difference from a sales perspective. If you work for a good company, when I say good company, I mean, good sales leadership is helping to kind of mentor you and coach you and not fight against you. Um, as well as actually a good product and a good implementation too, right? Like, are they actually doing good work so that you're able to meet good clients and, you know, kind of learn how to actually sell that top tier software and top tier tech. Um, it's definitely worth to kind of work your way in there. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't sleep on small, small companies and small implementers, um, you know, either there's, there's definitely an opportunity there, but just look for a good high quality company that you can grow at that has good technology, um, and then work hard. That's kind of the, the path to be path to being good at sales. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And then what, what about those of us that might be buyers, you know, we're, we're CIOs or part of projects teams that are part of a steering committee or whatever that's, that's buying a, a complex enterprise solution from a sales rep. What are, you know, what sort of closing advice would you leave with potential buyers? Yeah. So, you know, I, I go back to making sure that you really have a good relationship with that vendor, like an honest, open, authentic, trusting relationship. And if there's anything that you're seeing there that's giving you uncomfortable feelings or red flags, understanding them before moving forward. Um, because I, I think the biggest thing that I see is that companies move forward with the wrong vendor, they purchase the wrong software. And, you know, whether it's because they feel rushed because of their own internal timeline, or they wanted to save 15% on the total cost of the project. And then again, you see it all the time. All of a sudden it's two years later, it's not implemented. 
and they're paying a lot more money and it's taking a lot longer because they, they didn't trust and have, didn't have a good vendor at the beginning. So I think making sure you get it right the first time um, is a really important part of that. Another thing that from a tech perspective uh, or buying tech is understanding the platform and the roadmap in front of it. Um, I see a lot of companies that will again save money or whatever by going with a vendor, um, but it is a vendor that's kind of on its way out um, or doesn't have that long, good roadmap or doesn't integrate well with the other systems they have in place and all these different things. So um, I don't want to say don't go with you know small, small software options, but making sure you're picking a technology stack that's going to actually be what you need for the long haul and has all the different things you need in it. Because um, again, I, this is more from a web development perspective and see people build their web applications on some sort of proprietary non-open source software that wasn't, you know, but it made sense because of this one feature they wanted, right? And all of a sudden they can't do anything with it because there's not a lot of implementers that can actually program in it or do things with it. So they're, they're kind of handcuffing themselves unnecessarily. So just kind of knowing with your eyes wide open that you are, are getting something that's actually going to solve your problems and, and be good for the long term. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good advice. And then if, if, um, for those that are in sales and want to sort of sharpen their skills in sales, how, how do they learn about your coaching program? And maybe just give us a quick summary again. I know you mentioned it early on, but for those that may have missed it. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So our, our website is rolloffconsulting.com. Um, so check that out. And on there, you'll see the Catalyst community. And that's really our our foundational or kind of like our, our main uh, offering. And that's that's our, our group coaching um, as well as group calls. We have master sessions too. So we bring in guest speakers to talk on certain topics related to personal branding, digital sales. Uh, we actually have a speaker coming up in March. Um, who's going to do public speaking and kind of talking about ways to improve your speaking as a sales rep too. So um, that'd be a good thing to check out there. Otherwise, you know, following us on LinkedIn, um, I'm James Roloff, and then my wife, Emma, is in the business, too. So we do a lot of content in there and kind of talking about the things we've been talking about today. You'll see us doing that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Thank you, James. Great conversation. Really enjoyed having you here. Appreciate all the great comments and questions from the audience. Uh, we've got a lot more to cover. We're going to shift gears and bring on a next guest uh, right after the break. We're going to have Marcus Harris on the show, who's an attorney with Taft Law. He'll be on to talk about some of the legal considerations and digital transformation. So stick around. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, and I'm the CEO and founder of Third Stage Consulting. Before we dive too far into today's content, I want to invite you to learn a little bit more about Third Stage Consulting, who we are and what we do. I've included a link to a video right here that describes Third Stage in a bit more detail. It talks about our story, our history, our philosophy, our clients, our service offerings, and that sort of thing. But in general, what Third Stage Consulting does is we're an independent and tech agnostic consulting provider. We help clients through their entire digital transformation life cycles, beginning with digital strategy, software evaluation and selection, all the way through and including implementation planning, implementation readiness, and the actual implementation itself. We're technology agnostic, so we only represent our clients' best interests. We do not represent software vendors. But having said that, we work very closely with software vendors, all the leading players that you can imagine we've worked with both in helping clients evaluate and select them, but also in helping clients implement those solutions as well. So we have a very broad objective agnostic view of the market that is meant to really represent your interest as you go through your digital transformation. I also encourage you to scan this QR code right here to get access to our resource center. This resource center has a ton of information, ton of eBooks that are free. You have access to 
top 10 software rankings, playbooks for how to make your project more successful, guides to change management, YouTube videos, all kinds of stuff that are going to help you through your digital transformation. So I encourage you to scan this QR code to get access to those resources. And please feel free to reach out to me directly to brainstorm ideas about your project. Even if it's just informally, you want to bounce around some ideas and get some informal advice, I'd be happy to spend some time with you. So feel free to reach out to me. I've included my contact information below. You can also find it in the description field of this video as well. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 158. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. This show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformations. And the show is uh, sponsored, or, or I'm sorry, produced by Major Tom Productions. So thank you for being here today. I'm excited for uh, our next guest. It's actually a replay of a clip that we uh, recorded several months ago. And it was with Marcus Harris from Taft Law, who is on the show and I interviewed a few months ago to talk about legal considerations in digital transformations and just some of the, the nuances from a contracting perspective, but also from an intellectual property perspective. We'll talk a little bit about AI. There's a lot we talk about uh, from a legal perspective, just the, the legal risks and gotchas and lessons from, from an attorney's perspective. We thought it'd be great to play you this clip and uh, really as a way to piggyback on and build on what uh, James was on talking about just a moment ago as it relates to the tech sales world. Now we're gonna get into the legal side of things and, and tie it back to sales and the sales cycle, the procurement cycle, and the things you need to know from a legal perspective as you're buying or acquiring or procuring new enterprise technology. So with all that being said, let's roll the clip here with Marcus Harris talking about the legal considerations of digital transformation. Um, but I guess just to start, Marcus, what are some of the, the biggest legal challenges that you see your clients struggling with at the moment? Well, you know, look, in the, in the context of an ERP project or an ERP implementation, I think one of one of the biggest issues that we got that we that we see on a on a pretty regular basis is, you know, the, the continued push for this cloud migration. And I think certainly cloud makes sense and um, it's it's really a direction that I think if it makes sense for your company, it's something that you need to seriously consider doing. But I also don't think you need to throw the bait, meaning really that, you know, if you've got an on-premise solution that really works for you, and that's a delivery model or a usage model that is something that you can still utilize, you know, you don't necessarily need to fix it if it isn't broken. And I say that for a variety of reasons. One, I think that there is a perception that really is perpetuated by software vendors that these cloud contracts are low risk, that they're, they need to be consistent, that they need to be uh, the same across the customer base, and they do that so that they don't have to negotiate them. Um, mm. And so there's a, a huge level of inflexibility, not with all vendors, but certainly a, a large subset of vendors as to the terms and conditions that they will actually be willing to change and the rationale and reason they have for pushing back is look this is a standardized offering across our customer base and and the contract needs to be consistent for everybody and if we had to do this for for you or if we have to do this for you then we would have to do it for everybody and we just can't do that and that to me is is a is really an untenable position because what it leads to is you you know, signing a contract that is less than favorable, that in some ways might shift 
you know, all of the risk of that legal or business transaction to you from, from a, you know, a legal perspective. So you have unlimited liability. The, the vendor has no liability to you. Um, you're not only are you shifted, the risk is being shifted to you from a legal perspective, but from a business perspective, you're contractually obligated for the success of the project. And that doesn't make any sense. Why are you hiring them? You know, what, what, what's the purpose of, of you engaging with them? If you're the one responsible for the success of the entire project, one of the other things that we see, and this is troubling as well, is the wholesale incorporation of URLs into these documents. So what you get forwarded to you via DocuSign is a two-page order form that looks pretty innocuous. In reality, there's about 10 to 15 URLs that each link to a 15-page terms and conditions document that can be updated or modified at any point during your contractual relationship with this vendor. And that is just crazy to me, okay? And to really do this right, you've got to focus on the contract as it as a whole, including all the URLs that they stuff in there and try to hide from you. So, I mean, that, that, all, all of that is a, is a huge issue on the ERP front, just from a practical side. Yeah, th those are great points. And I, and I guess, um, coming back to the first point you made about, um, you know, the, the fact that software vendors create these standard one size fits all contracts, so they don't have to negotiate. If I'm a, let's say I'm a CIO at a $100 million U.S. turnover or an annual revenue sort of a company, $100 million in revenue, I'm a CIO or an IT director, and um, I'm dealing with, you know, SAP or Oracle, you know, like a, a company that has tens of billions in revenue and just massive company compared to me as, a, as my organization. Do I have, what sort of leverage do I have to do to change that? You know what I mean? Because we get a lot of clients that say we're a tiny fish in the sea, in a big pond or a big sea. Um, can we really push back on some of these terms and conditions? And what, what's your experience been? I mean, you know, that back probably five years ago, I would have said you've got a lot of, of lot of leverage and, and you're going to have a lot of success getting, you know, normal concessions that are reasonable and mitigate the risk of that transaction. I would have said that you've got a pretty good chance of doing that if you're spending any you know, reasonable amount of money. Today, I think you've got to spend an insane amount of money. You've got to be in the multi-millions in order to, to really have a lot of push and leverage with certain vendors. And so what your strategy needs to be, and, and be clear, I am specifically talking about the, the software side of this transaction, not, not the implementation side yet. Right. Okay. And so if, if you are not spending serious money with this vendor, there's going to be no incentive for them to get off their standard positions and their standard positions are absolutely horrible. Okay. And so what, what you need to do is make a list, you know, have an attorney or your in-house people go through that contract and identify, you know, the top five, top 10 things that are the most important to you or the riskiest, really, you know, and, and importance and risk are, are kind of two sides of the same coin. And once you have done that, you can kind of assign a risk rating to them and figure out, okay, if I don't get all 10, which you're probably not going to get, what can I really live with and what do I really need to push for? You know, you've got to break them down into business issues and legal issues. And the business issues always drive the legal issues. And we like to say, well, you know, all, all issues are really business issues, but pure, you know, business issues, what kind of warranty are you getting? What's the limitation of liability? Um, is there an indemnity obligation? What are they stepping up to as far as reps and warranties and that kind of thing? And make sure that they're substantive and real because what you want is if it all goes sideways and you've got to litigate this contract, you at least want to have a dog in the fight. Right. And, and you get there by having, you know, subjected them to 
you know, a reasonable limitation of liability so you can recover money damages if you need to, so that they'll do something. They have an incentive to fix something. There's a warranty and it's got substantive remedies if there's a breach of that warranty. You want to make sure you've got things like that. Um, you know, you've got an indemnity obligation so that if the software causes an issue for you and you get sued by a third party, you, they will do something about it and you're not left holding the bag. So, you know, really the way to mitigate that is to pick the big top, top five, top seven, top 10, whatever it is. Yeah. You may not get everything you want, but if you get the top five or however many, you know, high priority showstoppers, uh, that's, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's not about nuance depending on the, the vendor and the size of the transaction. It's really just that, that it's what, what can we get? You know, what, what's going to make this an easier transaction for us? Right. Um, if you're in a specialized industry like banking, banking or finance or, or whatever it is that you've got, you know, specific requirements, that might be a different situation and you may have some more pool there. Right. So here's a really interesting question from uh, Rahendra. Rahendra on LinkedIn. Rahendra says, Marcus, what percentage of customers hire legal experts before signing contracts with ERP vendors? Do you have, do you have a sense of that? You know, it's, it's hard to say. Not, not enough of them, to be, to be quite honest with you. There's an old saying in my industry that early legal advice is not expensive. Right. And, you know, if you spend, I don't know, it, 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 you know, this, the legal spend has to be proportional to what the business deal size is. But let's say you spend 5% or 10% of the deal size on, on a legal review of the contract. Um, you're going to put yourself in a much better position as if you didn't, because God forbid you've got to you know, enforce that contract in some way. You never negotiated it. You're not going to have any success. Right. That contract, every every paragraph, every comma, every sentence is going to be against you, and you're going to have a pretty hard time. You know, we see on a pretty regular basis contracts that come across our desks where there's a failure or some other sort of breach. And you can, you look at this and it's like, well, you spent $5 million. Did you have any look, anybody look at the contract? No, no, we didn't. I mean, that, to me, that's just insane. You know? I mean, yeah. The, the risk is. is there. Why not mitigate it? Right. Well, in your internal legal counsel, if you have that, if you're a big enough company to where you have an internal, you know, general counsel or a legal team, you know, that helps, but they generally don't negotiate these kind of contracts every day like you do. So I think that's one of the big things that companies overlook too, is they look at it from a pure T's and C's perspective. And they probably, you know, your internal legal counsel can presumably help with a lot of that, but there's a lot of nuances that are unique to the industry and a lot of gotchas and pitfalls that you wouldn't know just from being an attorney, you would know from being an attorney that does this all the time. And I think that's a nuance that a lot of organizations miss out on too. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think any attorney that looks at a commercial contract is going to be able to look at, you know, three or four issues and, and understand that that doesn't seem reasonable. But, you know, the, the great challenge with agreements is particularly in this industry is, you know, is what is there reasonable? Is it market, so to speak? That's not something that you're going to know if you don't do this all the time. And then the other thing that you're not going to know, which is equally as important, is it's easy to see what's in the contract and tell a client it's reasonable or unreasonable or it's a, you know it's risky or not risky. But what about the things that are supposed to be there that are not? And if, if you have no experience in this area, you're not going to even be able to key in on those issues. And that to me um, is worth you know the, the price that you're going to pay for an attorney review. Yeah. We're here playing you a clip with Marcus Harris talking about the legal considerations of digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Well, we're living in. Let me tell you. 
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 158. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. The show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformations, including the digital strategy, software selection, and implementation aspects of transformation. We're here with uh, Marcus Harris talking about the legal considerations of digital transformation. So let's jump back into the conversation. And when you're dealing with these big software companies too, and, and the big um, technical consulting firms, the big system integrators, when you're dealing with those really big companies, you know we're sort of we're sort of circling around this topic of leverage too. That's we haven't used that exact word yet, but um, one thing you have to look at is what kind of leverage do I have with a big massive behemoth in the tech industry? And part of it is the knowledge that you know uh, uh, someone like Taft or you, Marcus, could bring to the table. But there's also a leverage that comes with that too that I think is really important. And it and it comes from hiring companies like Third Stage too, even though we're not attorneys. We're not here to negotiate contracts, but we do provide part of the reason why clients hire us throughout their digital transformation is to give to help provide leverage, you know, to where they have ownership and leverage over the project and over their their partners. And you hate sometimes you hate to think that way. You know, you don't want to think adversarially, but you, when you're dealing with a two sided, you know, two sided contractor, you hope it's two sided. It may be a one sided contract, which is even worse, which is sort of yeah. what you're alluding to here. You, you need that leverage and that negotiation leverage. I've, I've seen it with you where a client hires you. And it's not just the knowledge you bring, it's the fact that you have an attorney from the outside that's helping you. And that suddenly that changes the dynamics of the relationship and the conversation in general. Well, it really, it really does. And I mean, I think, you know, one of, one of the other tips here is you need to hire experts. Okay. If you don't have the in-house expertise and, you know, the life cycle of these, of these products is pretty long, right. And, you know, maybe in your career, if you're at the same company, you do this maybe two or three times in your career, right. Um, maybe if you've jumped around companies, you've done it five, six, seven times. But but you know, having said that, I mean, you you may have some 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 understanding of of how these things go as an individual professional. But hiring attorneys and hiring consultants that can develop RFPs, RFIs, conduct software demos, develop you know scripts, all of that stuff is incredibly important for you to get an understanding of, of you know, what you're about to get into mitigate you know the, the the risk associated with it and really you know someone that can benchmark you know what should what you should be doing against what other people or other companies your size are doing that's invaluable information and then you know once you've got that empowerment you know it gives you realistic expectations as to how that negotiation process is going to go what you can expect to get or not get and you know from a bigger picture you know 
what the implementation process is going to be like, how much is it going to cost, and how long it's going to take. I mean, you've got to have all that information going into this. And the only way to get that oftentimes is by hiring somebody that's done it hundreds, if not thousands of times. Right. Yeah, exactly. And here's a an interesting uh, follow-up to um, a point you made earlier, and this is also, also from Rahendra on LinkedIn. And uh, Rahendra says, Marcus, URLs and contract that you mentioned is interesting. Could the customer not insist that documents in URLs need to be printed and signed as, as part of the contract? Yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's really kind of the, the way to get through it, right, is to say, look, you can't, you can't give me a moving target of a contract. And, and I need to have, you know, some, some guarantee that you can't unilaterally change the, what I think are agreed upon terms. And so let's attach all these URLs to the agreement as exhibits. That's certainly the way to do it. The, the challenge that you're going to run into is this whole flexibility argument. And they're going to say, well, you know, that's all well and good and we're willing to do that. But you have to understand that as the product set changes or we improve and provide additional functionality, the requirements or the descriptions or you know, the, the specifications are going to change. And those documents that, that are in URLs necessarily will need to change as well. And so you, you've got to account for that, which in some ways is a reasonable issue that they have, but you know, you've got to make sure that they don't take unfairly advantage of it or unfair advantage of it. Excuse me. Yeah, absolutely. Here's a question from, from Kyler on LinkedIn, a really good question. That's very pertinent in today's day and age. What, when moving to a cloud solution from an on-prem solution, legacy <laughs> system, what are some of the key nuances you should look for in the contract, such as total cost of ownership? Well, you know, it's, it's a good it's a good question and it's nuanced. I think there's a lot of ways to go with that, but certainly from a legal perspective, you know, you you want to make sure that you're getting some sort of a discounted rate. Okay, the rate or the discount is going to be proportional, I think, to the length of the term. Um, and having said that, you know, you're there's going to be a resistance on the part of the vendor to give you the ability to easily get out of that contract without having to pay. So if you've negotiated a really good deal and you've got a five-year term, they're not going to want to get let you get out of the contract for convenience after year two without having to pay the remainder of the term. So the total cost of ownership in that, in that context is going to be much higher than an on-prem model, arguably. Um, and there's a lot of nuance and gray area to what I just said, and we can get into that. But but you know the, the 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 reality of this total cost of ownership is that the cloud model is not necessarily cheaper and in fact i would assert that it's probably more expensive and one of the reasons that drives the push to the cloud and the transition from everybody you know going from on-prem to cloud is it's a it's a revenue grab in some in some respects and you've got to be careful with that yeah yeah i was i was actually talking to a vendor uh one of the bigger software vendors in the space last week and they, they were the first vendor I've ever heard admit that the cloud is better for them than it is for their customers. <laughs> and it's not anything I think they'd say on record. They, they would never say that on this live stream or in this format, but they were saying, I mean, I, I wasn't even baiting them into saying that. I wasn't, because yeah. usually I would, that's something I would say, uh, or you would say, but um, they, they kind of came out and said, yeah, the, the cloud thing is it's great for us, but we don't necessarily know that it's best for all of our customers. Yeah, I mean, I you know, there's a lot of disadvantages to it. I think cost is only one. I mean, the, the flexibility and the ability to customize the software certainly isn't as robust as it would be in an on-prem solution. So, you know, yeah. and that's what I said earlier is, you know, the, the push and the drive to the cloud, 
you got to be careful with that. I mean, sometimes it doesn't it doesn't make sense for you. And just because everybody else is doing it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean you should do it, too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's this is great because uh, I love all these audience questions because it's taking pressure off me to ask you questions. It's uh, the bad news is it's just putting pressure on you, Marcus, to answer more questions, but it's taking it off me because I don't have to come up with questions. <laughs> but but uh, this is from Ryan on LinkedIn. He says, if you started to see any issues arise from companies leveraging artificial intelligence or machine learning in their implementations and what do those issues look like? So I feel like this is a not a can of worms, but a Pandora's box that we could spend the entire hour talking about if we wanted to. But what are some of the the big the big things you've noticed here. Yeah, and this is a huge issue. And I'll try to I'll try to kind of hit on some of the highlights. I mean, you know, look, AI is certainly the wave of the future. And I think there's a lot of implications for ERP. And I think some of them are certainly amazing. Um, and it runs the gamut from, you know, AI generated code and the development process. For some, you know, you're using you've got you've got a vendor that's using artificial intelligence to streamline the development. Um, of the code and the implementation so that you're paying less money overall. You've got, you know, robust artificial intelligence tools built into your ERP system that, you know, are going to be more efficient or allow you to be more efficient, uh, you know, predict uh, things, use your data in ways that you can only imagine. And all of this is, is, is amazing stuff. But from a risk perspective, I mean, you, you, you've really got to be open and aware of, you know, a variety of issues. I mean, from an intellectual property standpoint, really, there's a, there's a ton of issues here where, you know, what, and it, and it comes down to the, the, the corpus of data that, that AI is trained on, okay? So what, what AI tool is being used either to develop the, the software during the implementation process or to integrate it, or what, what AI tools have been integrated into the ERP system that you're going to use on a going forward basis? Now, You've got to know that because you have to understand how that artificial intelligence system or platform was trained, what data or corpus of data is what we call it, was it trained on? You know, what, what you don't want is, you know, to be utilizing a system that has just gone out on the internet and collected all sorts of data and is now incorporating your data into that corpus. And that data set is also available to all of your competitors because you're on the cloud and you're sharing an AI platform. You know, Samsung, uh, not that long ago, had a, had a huge issue from a trade secret perspective where their internal employees were putting in, you know, secret information into an AI platform that was publicly available um, to, to do something with, you know, getting more efficient in their work stream, I suppose. Um, and you know, no one knows exactly what happened to that trade secret information. Now it's been incorporated into that AI data set, and now other companies are training on that, or other companies are using data that's been trained on that data. So, you know, I mean, there's a there's a variety of issues here, um, and I think you know the the bright line rule is make sure that you really need to use AI, okay? Um, and and if if your vendors are using it to develop deliverables, code, integrate your software, know what tools they're using, know what the terms and conditions associated with it are, okay? Um, and then you also need to have an understanding of, you know, what AI tools are being incorporated into your, your, your ERP software that you're gonna be using on a going forward basis. And the reason for that is you wanna understand you know, what happens to your data once you put it in the AI system um, you want to have an understanding of what you can do with the data that comes out of that AI system, 
you know, if, if it's 10% your info and 90% your competitor's info and they still have an ownership interest in it and now you incorporate it with your you know, deliverables or your products and then you go commercialize it, you know, what are the issues associated with infringement? So you know, there's just a ton of kind of mind-blowing issues that you really have to consider. But I do think it all comes back to having an understanding of the tool sets and the, the terms and conditions that are governing those and doing a, le a level of due diligence to understand what the risk is. Right, right. We're here playing you a clip with Marcus Harris talking about the legal considerations of digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Could you whisper in my ear the things you wanna feel? Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 158. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. The show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformations, including the digital strategy, software selection, and implementation aspects of transformation. We're here with uh, Marcus Harris talking about the legal considerations of digital transformation. So let's jump back into the conversation. You were on our podcast uh, a couple months ago, and we talked specifically in that episode about um, artificial intelligence, open AI in particular, ChatGPT right. and open AI. And uh, I guess just to ask you a question or a topic we touched on in that, I think it's it's worth bringing up again here today. But if I'm using ChatGPT and let's just say I'm on a digital transformation project team, or let's just say I'm not even on a project team, I'm just part of an organization and I'm using ChatGPT to create some graphs or do some analysis for me using my my company data, um, what what happens to that information? Who owns it? Do I have protection? Is it out? Is it out in the public now? Like, what do I what do I need to be aware of, either as part of a transformation or an organization in general, if I'm using ChatGPT or OpenAI tools like that that are so common right. now? Well, if if you are incorporating data from your company, okay, in well, you're you're putting it into Open OpenAI or ChatGPT. You want to have an understanding of what happens to that data once it's put into that platform, and you know there, there's there's some platforms where you know, you give up ownership interests in it, and or 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 you give a, a perpetual license to the platform so that it incorp can incorporate that information into the data set, train on the data set, and then spit out you know additional information for other users that is, and that information is based on or somehow reliant upon the information that you put in previously. Okay. So, you know, there's a, there's a variety of litigation right now. One of them deals with Getty images where, um, you know, the AI system was trained on publicly available information. Okay. And some of those are just Getty images that are out on the internet. And you ask, you know, a, a, a open AI platform to, you know, 
generate pictures of cats or something, right? And all of a sudden, you know, it's a it's a it's a, con a conglomeration of different Getty images, and you know the, the the Getty image watermark is on there. That is problematic, especially if you're going to go use that, and or or worse, commercially exploit that and do something with it. You know, Getty Images is going to come after you and say, "Hey, you know, that's my information. You've built derivative works based on that information, and now you're commercially exploiting it. You owe me a lot of money." So, that's you know, that's the scenario that you have to be aware of and worried about. You know, you're 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 putting your company information into the the OpenAI platform to generate graphs. Now, what are you going to do with those graphs? Do you have the right to utilize them? And if you give them to your client, or your customer, and they go do things with them, what's the risk to them? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it, all, none of this is really settled. You've got to look at the terms and conditions to, uh, of, of use of that that Jeep, that that OpenAI platform to make an understand, have an understanding of what the risk is. So if I go out to ChatGPT right now, let's just say hypothetically, I were to say um, I asked ChatGPT to, um, and, I, and I've, yeah, I'll give you an example. We use HubSpot for our CRM system. Right. And HubSpot has like this integration now to ChatGPT and OpenAI where you could enter, I could type something into HubSpot, which is where we track all of our um, client information as well as our prospective client information, all the leads that come in on our website, everything goes through HubSpot. If I were to go to, to ChatGPT using that integration with HubSpot and I say, um, run a report of the last, uh, or tell me who the last 100 leads were that came in to, to the, through our website, um, and it spits out a report for me or it gives me some sort of consolidation or summary. Is that information now sort of public domain? Like, in other words, do I lose the sensitivity or the confidentiality of that information that I've had housed internally? Now I've used OpenAI to do some sort of analysis or do something with that data. What, what happens to that information? Well, there's a, a huge risk. So if, if you were going to then argue that that information is a trade secret, okay, and you had put that into ChatGPT or HubSpot or, or whatever it is, and there's an express license from you to that platform allowing them to utilize that information, create derivative works, and provide it to other people. The the argument that you that you are going to make that that's a trade secret is is out the window basically because now you you negated any trade secret protection that you might have otherwise had for that that particular information. So. If you have anything that's secret, confidential, or sensitive, it should not be put into an OpenAI platform. It just shouldn't. Right. There, there's a tremendous amount of risk. Now, the the way to get around this, and you know, a lot of the vendors are, are developing their own systems, is you you want to you want to have a, a an OpenAI platform that is, you know, closed. I would say, um, and it's being trained on your own data. And so, you know, what's coming out of that system is something that's been vetted by your own company and utilized, you know, with can be utilized with some assurance that you're not giving up secrets and you're not infringing. So, you know, for for example, one of the practical um, impacts for a law firm would be, you know, we've negotiated thousands of, of enterprise software contracts. OK, and we've got an employee, a first or second year attorney that is tasked with coming up with a contractual framework for a brand new ERP vendor or startup, and he doesn't know where to start. He goes into our version of ChatGPT um, or whatever, you know, OpenAI platform that we've developed, but the data set, the corpus of data is, is documents that 
attorneys at this law firm have developed in the past, they've all been reviewed, they're reviewed on a consistent basis, and they're all good, solid documents to use. And now he can be confident that, you know, the, the documents that he's generating based on those aren't going to be infringing, they're not going to include any client secret, informa secret information, and he's not giving up any kind of intellectual property that he shouldn't be. That's where you want to get at some point. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a whole continuum between, you know, 100% safe utilization of open AI versus, you know, a, a totally risky one. And you kind of want to be somewhere in the middle. Right. Yeah. That makes, makes total sense. Here's a, here's a follow-up on LinkedIn that I think is super interesting. Be curious to get your reaction. Um, lots of companies are coming up with open AI based products in manufacturing lines, smart cities, et cetera, you name it. How can we use it to our own advantage without much risk to client data? So in other words, how can we leverage AI in these open models, but also not run into the problems that you're you're talking about? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't I don't know if you can, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I think it's an inherently risky thing to do, and you have to understand the risk. And you know, I sound like a broken record to some extent because I keep saying go back to the terms and conditions. But if you're utilizing a particular AI platform, you have to read what they can do with your data and what they can't do with your data. You know, it's, it's a pretty simple exercise. Print out the terms of service or the terms of use, which is a binding contractual agreement, and understand what guarantees are they making to you and what are you giving them. Oftentimes, you're giving them an irrevocable perpetual license to utilize the data that you put in there in any way, shape, or form that they want, and they use it to train their AI system and it's available then to other other customers that are using the AI platform as well. And, you know, that, so the, the way to mitigate it is either don't use it, which isn't a good, a good solution because everybody's going to use it, develop your own system or license it on a, on a exclusive or semi-exclusive basis where you've got terms that are more favorable to you than to the general public. You know, there's tiers, right? You go to, you go to chat GPT, you get a, you get, you've got a free service, you've got one that you can pay for. You know, the, that's Once you start paying for things, then you can customize the, the level of risk and what you want to agree to and not agree to. You might customize some of the benefits and the functionality as well, though. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point. And I, as we were talking about this and as that question came out, I never thought of this before until just now. And, and this is a stick with me for a moment. I'm going to go a conspiracy theory for a second. But uh, the Great Reset, you know, the the line of thought that, you know, there's a movement to sort of equalizing countries and people within countries and sort of knocking down barriers and competitive advantages and things like that. I'm oversimplifying what the Great Reset yeah. conspiracy theory is, but it makes me wonder now if OpenAI is part of that Great Reset uh, conspiracy. <laughs> you know, that could be a whole, whole other topic. You, you never know. I mean, you remember, you know, uh, Snowden, I guess is how you say it, when he yeah. disclosed all the... the you know, national secret information, and there were the you know the USB thumb drives that actually you know were distributed to all these adversarial countries that you know infected their computers and was a, a tool for spying. I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, it, it, it very well could be something like that. You, you got to yeah. be careful. Well, and, and even if that's not the intent, there's not some you know conspiracy behind the scenes happening. I mean, you do have to be aware that from from what you're saying, it sounds like you could lose a lot of competitive advantage by giving up some of this confidential information and advantages that you have as an organization. And so um, just being aware of it, I think is is step number one. And then you also mentioned in that that episode you were on last, I think you were talking about getting policies in place. You talked a bit about, you know, what you can do to mitigate and to sort of 
especially now that ChatGPT, I keep talking about ChatGPT, even though that's only one part of OpenAI yeah. or one example, but it, that seems to be the consumer facing one that a lot of people know of and they can use it at home and in their personal lives or at work. But you get a lot of people that start using ChatGPT or OpenAI in the, in the workplace. You sort of have to put some parameters in place of what can or can't you use, you know, in terms of confidential information within yeah, that person. I, I think it's critical. I mean, if you're a company of any size um, doing a re any kind of reasonable amount of business um, and you're trying to use these tools, you've got to put some sort of policy in place. You've got to put guardrails for your employees to have an understanding of when they can and when they can't utilize it. Because if there is an incident, you want to you want to insulate yourself as much as possible from liability. If you have no policy and it's the Wild West, they've got to help you. Right. I mean, I think you're, you're really setting yourself up for for some potential liability there. But I think if you have a well thought out internal policy as to when people can use it, what they can use it for and what they can't put in there, um, then I think I think you're doing about everything you can do to, to, to really mitigate the risk to your company and the liability that would follow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, great, great points there. We're here playing you a clip with Marcus Harris talking about the legal considerations of digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. When I wake up, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out. I'm excited to share our newly released 2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 158. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. The show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformations, including the digital strategy, software selection, and implementation aspects of transformation. We're here with uh, Marcus Harris talking about the legal considerations of digital transformation. So let's jump back into the conversation. What other, are there any other sorts of uh, intellectual property types of risk? And that's essentially what we're talking about here is confidential data and, and intellectual property and how do you protect it? And we've been talking about it a lot in the context of open AI, but what about custom software? You know, if you do customization to software, um, I'll give you an example, we have a client right now who's doing a, an SAP implementation and they are, um, they're sort of co-innovating with SAP for a certain industry that they're in to create a product that fits their industry, which is highly risky by the way, but that's a whole nother conversation, highly risky to co-develop this stuff and then introduce it to your organization when it's never been used by anyone else. That's a whole nother story for another time. Yeah, but, yeah. but what do you, how do, what about intellectual property in that case, when you customize software, like who owns that in that case, if you're, if your software vendor is creating customization for you, but you're paying for it and you're using yeah. it for your organization. Well, you know, most customers think that because they're paying for it, they own it. And that's not the way the law works, unfortunately. So the way the law works is the ownership defaults to the author and, and software code is authored in this context. 
So in, in the context that, that you just laid out, SAP would be the absolute owner of it. And now that becomes problematic for a variety of reasons. And, and one is, you know, if you're developing that something or paying SAP to develop something for you that is strategic and gives you a strategic advantage, you're going to want to have some exclusivity associated with that competitive advantage. And you're not going to want SAP to have an ownership interest in it. And so that needs to be detailed in the contract. I think, you know, one, one of the ways in, in SAP does this in particular to deal with this situation is to clarify, hey, look, you know, everything that we SAP bring to the table, our pre-existing intellectual property will remain ours, okay? Everything that that is your pre-existing intellectual property is going to remain yours. And then anything that we do on the project specifically for you, that's where the gray area is. SAP's default position is we own it and it's ours, okay? Mm -hmm. And you know, their rationale for that is, well, we're a software development company, so to speak, and we need to take this that piece of deliverable technology, whatever it is, code that we're developing for your particular implementation, and then be able to utilize it across our customer base so that we can gain efficiencies for that. And that's that's our business model. That's what we do. Your argument and counter to that is, well, I'm paying you specifically to do something that I've come up with that is innovative, and I need to own it. And so those are the two you know, loggerheads that you're going to run into. And, you know, you, you've got to put contractual language in the agreement. Uh, it's called work for hire language specifically that, that would vest ownership in anything that's custom created in, 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 in your company. Um, and, you know, whether they're likely to do that or not depends on a variety of factors, including how much money you're spending. But, you know, one of the interesting questions is, is you know, what if SAP is developing something for you? Um, they're going to own that because it's based on their code, but it incorporates a piece of, you know, technology or information or confidential information, whatever it is, and that's embedded in it. Um, who owns that embedded piece of, of technology or information? You know, that's something that you've got to carve out contractually and make sure everybody understands. Yeah. Well, of course, there's the whole, you've addressed the legal side of it, and then there's the ethical side of you know, should a software vendor be charging a customer to develop software that they don't have that, you know, so in other words, you're, you're hiring an ERP vendor or a commercial off the shelf software vendor to provide capabilities out of the box that, you know, that's, that's the whole point of it. Otherwise you, you could go create your own custom software, you know, and, and maintain that competitive advantage. Right. But there's the ethics of software vendor charges for it develops it for you, but they take that and then that becomes sort of the industry standard that they provide to other customers, their own customers that are presumably competitors of yours, by the way, if you're one co-innovating with them, right. there's nothing stopping that vendor from now offering that same capability to other other vendors. And, and they will do it, right? If, they, if they've got the ability to do it, they're going to do it. Um, and they're going to be laughing all the way to the bank. You know, their position would be, well, look, everybody thinks that they've got something innovative and, and amazing, and really all this stuff is the same from customer to customer. No one's really doing anything that much differently um, anyway. And so there's no ethical issue here. It's an issue of practicality. And, and, you know, if you were to have an ownership interest in this as a customer, then if we were to ever provide something that's substantively similar to other customers, you're going to be able to sue not only us, but those customers. 
and that creates an untenable situation for us. So, I mean, this is this is one of the the most negotiated, uh, difficult issues in these kinds of agreement agreements. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, it's not only a, a an ethical issue, but it's also a practical one too. Why are you hiring SAP to custom develop software for you for something that should be off the shelf? You've already got a problem, in my view. Yeah, and you're you're headed down a road that's that's ripe with difficulty, whether it's you know spending way too much money, going over budget, having issues with support and maintenance for customized software that nobody else has. You know, I mean, there's a lot of issues there. Yeah. Well, and just as a footnote or kind of a uh, what happened next to that client example I gave you, and since I didn't mention the client, I can say this. And by the way, it's not the only client we have that this has happened to, but they canceled their S4 HANA implementation. Um, oh, wow. And they're trying to do this co-innovation thing. And when you hear the word co-innovation, um, this is not a legal, this is not legal advice. This is just more uh, third-party consulting advice. But when you hear the word co-innovation, that's usually code for we don't have the functionality you need, so pay us to develop it for you. And you, you have to really, uh, that's that's highly risky. I mean, you you might as well at that point go create your own custom software because that's a, that is what you're doing. I'm, the only, it's actually in some ways even worse because you're taking a off-the-shelf system and you're trying to change it to do something it was, wasn't designed to do, but you're changing it for your business. And uh, that's always risky to do. I, I think that's you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it is risky. Why would you do that? I mean, um, you're creating just a whole risk profile that subjects you to a lot of problems and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what are some of the ways, you know, if we sort of tie this all together, if I'm on a project team and I'm about to go through a transformation, I'm about to go procure software, what are some of the best ways to mitigate risk during the procurement process? What are some of the, you know, some of the low hanging fruits that you would recommend? Yeah. And, and, and look, I mean, it's going to sound, you know, like a, a sponsored kind of statement or something, but to hire somebody like you, to, to be quite honest with you, you know. But what, what you want is, you know, consultants that that are have an understanding of the software evaluation and selection process. And I think if you're in that procurement space or phase, those are gonna those are the types of consultants that are gonna provide the most value in in selecting, you know, the right solution for you, vetting that out, you know, pitting vendors against each other. I mean, what you want are you know, tight RFPs, tight RFIs that actually, you know, help you. You want to be able to, you know, select vendors based on objective criteria, which would be software demonstrations, testing, scripts, that kind of thing. Um, get an understanding of the, the total cost of ownership, the, the cost of the integration, the implementation, any customization that would be necessary. And then, you know, keep two or two to three vendors you know, in that selection process while you go through that contract negotiation so that you can see what are you actually getting? Who's giving you a better deal? You know, let them know that they're competing against each other. Like the worst thing you can do is, you know, look at what your competitors are, or, or who, who they're using, pick that, that company, move forward with it and just sign a contract as is with them. That, that to me is a recipe for disaster in a very big way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yet a lot of companies do that, exactly that. Yeah. And, and you know, those are the companies that you see fail. And, you know, they wonder you know, why they're in this situation where, you know, they're, they're over budget, um, milestones have been missed, and they're not getting the functionality or the business benefits that they wanted to realize. And, you know, there's a reason for that. You didn't, you didn't do your homework on the front end, and you're not going to get it on the back end.
Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, what about during implementation? What, what sort of, uh, what are some of the best ways to mitigate risk during the legal risk during the implementation process? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, you know, I, I go back to these contractual tools, right. And, um, you know, there's an old joke. If you, know, you hire a, a, a carpenter to do something, you know, he just wants to hit everything with a hammer. Right. Right. And, and you know, that, that's kind of the lawyer's perspective as well. But here, I think it's really true. I mean, you have to negotiate solid implementation related contracts that serve as a tool to manage and govern your relationship with that vendor throughout the process. Okay. You want to be able to pull out a statement of work and say, this is when you were supposed to do this. You didn't do it. Here's what you have to do now. And here's the impact on the budget. That, that to me is tight governance of the project. And it has to be in the contracts because if it's not, you're relying on you know them to develop a project plan. You're you're relying on you know regular meetings. You're re relying on project status updates that may not really provide you with any substantive information anyway. Um, those can be manipulated, and, and the true health of the project can be hidden from you. I mean, you you've got to put contracts with teeth in them, you know, to manage the project. They're going to push back, of course, right? They're going to say, well, we've got this vague vague implementation methodology. Um, and you just need to trust it and that this is how we do things. They won't provide you with any kind of, you know, timelines or estimations or milestones or deliverable deadlines and just say, well, here's this you know, vague PowerPoint, you know, presentation of how an implementation normally goes. Good luck. That's right. the opposite of what you want. But the reality is, I mean, today, you know, with this, the push to the cloud, standardization among vendors, the argument that the, the contracts are all standard. And, and the implementation should be standard too. You, you're going to run into a lot of pushback on this, you know. And you know, agile software development is a problem as well, where you know they're going to say, "Well, we can't we can't do it that way because you know we just got to iterate, and, and, and that's the value of our system, and it, mm -hmm. it's a lot more you know beneficial to you in the long run." Well, that's not really true in my view. I think you know they're they're get, they're they're telling you a load of, of BS in order to get you to, to sign on the dotted line and then they're going to do what they want and, right. and they're going to charge you for the, for the benefit of them doing what they want. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The agile conversation is a whole nother Pandora's box. We could spend an hour on that for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the bane of, of a software attorney's existence is, you know, you know, having an agile methodology and then they come back and say, well, we can't even have SOWs because, you know, it's just gonna, you just gotta iterate the whole time. And that, that, you know, that that's just a horrible, horrible strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, you hate to say it, but you look at what are the ways that software vendors and implementers protect themselves. And you, you talked about the contractual protection, the one-sided contractual protection they um, they put in these one-size-fits-all contracts that are meant to service, serve their self-interest. But then Agile too, you know, that's another thing that regardless of whether or not it's the right answer for a client, it is a good way to protect yourself if you're an implementer because you're just adapting, you're reacting, you're, you know, it, it takes away the need or it takes the pressure off you defining requirements up front and having a clear strategy and blueprint for how you're going to deploy technology. It takes a lot of that pressure off you because you're, you're doing it in the name of agile. Um, so right. And you're doing it on an hourly basis. And, you know, you, you can, you know, just, you're, 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 you're getting, getting drunk off hourly hours, hourly charges or hourly fees, you know, like a pirate on the dock, you know, swigging rum and you're just having a good old time. And it's a know, great it's analogy. All, all to agile and, you know, you're making a ton of money and it's not going anywhere. 
There's no there's no checks and balances on your performance, um, and you know all that's obviously risky. Now, anytime I see a technical consultant, I'm going to think of he or she is a pirate on a ship just drinking rum so <laughs> to the caribbean or whatever that's right um, that's right all right thank you marcus great conversation and hopefully you enjoyed seeing that uh, clip if you missed it the first time uh back from late or mid last year i should say it was when we first played that clip on this podcast uh but we thought it'd be a good uh, supplementary interview to go with the conversation with james earlier in this episode where we talk about the sales and procurement process. And obviously Marcus is going to come at it from a, an attorney's perspective uh, to talk about the legal considerations during the procurement uh, cycle, as well as during implementations as well. So hopefully that uh, gave you some good insights and things to consider from a legal perspective. Um, appreciate our two guests being on the show here today. Appreciate all the audience questions. We're, we're done here for the day, uh, but you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. You can also go back and watch any of the past episodes of this show, which are always action-packed and filled with information and great guests. So I encourage you to go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to view past episodes or listen to past episodes of this show. Um, also encourage you to please share this podcast with any of your colleagues or friends or uh, coworkers that might be interested in the content. Um, again, show is produced by Major Tom Productions and sponsored by Third Stage Consulting. Third Stage is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys. Uh, it's a company I work for. If you'd like to learn more about us and what we do, you can feel free to reach out to me uh, directly and we'd be happy to chat with you about uh, your initiatives and how we might be able to help. Or even if you just want to informally brainstorm ideas related to your project, we're happy to do that as well. So hope you all have a great week. We'll look forward to seeing you next time on Transformation Ground Control. Take care.